everybody doing today? It's your host, Mike Miller, here on the Thirst Podcast with my co-host, Kelby Crawford. Today, guys, we have Scott Lopez. Uh, Scott Lopez is a, a guy who um, we just think is just amazing as far as from anything from tracking dogs, archery. Um, Scott's even involved with uh, Antler Extreme, uh, which is a feed company uh, based out of here in Middle Georgia. So um, we're super excited to have him on, and uh, I hope you guys get a chance to really pay attention to um, a lot of the things that Scott has to say, especially when it comes to uh, shot placement, um, when to call in a tracking dog, when to back out, how much time you wait. So, but we're going to go ahead and get into it, and uh, I want you guys to pay some really close attention to what he's going to have to say. So, Scott, man, thank you for being here with us today. We're super excited to have you. So, uh, well, man, uh, Scott, tell us a little bit about you know who you are. Uh, I know uh, you work for you do about a fifty thousand different things. You have like yeah. a million jobs. Yeah, if there was, uh, I told you before, if there was thirty hours in the day, I could use thirty four of them. So exactly. But uh, well, thanks for thanks for having me on. I appreciate that, and you know it's really cool that you guys asked me to be part of this. So yeah, absolutely. So uh, Scott works uh, uh, in the guards in the Air Force. What is your job in the Air Force? Exactly? So I've been with uh, the Air Force uh, for 16 years. Nice. I did the uh, active duty for four, and then I've been with Air National Guard for the rest of it so far with the J Stars program out at Robbins. Nice. So do airfield management out there and uh, operations for the J Stars program. Nice. So, um, but also you. Um, yeah, that's my full time job. That's your full time job. Yeah, so he's also been running the obsession booth at the ASAs for a while. He does a really good job with that. So yeah, so we got obsession and been with them for several years. And I do that, like you mentioned, Antler Extreme. You know, and then everything else is the rest of my life is like basically around you know deer hunting and all kind of different hunting and then different aspects of hunting as far as like tracking and deer feed and all that kind of stuff. So that's a good deal. So. um well, guys, one thing Scott does is uh, he trains uh, tracking dogs. He's actually one of the main people in our area, Middle Georgia. He's the guy you want to call. Um, what, what's your main do- uh, tracking dog's name? Zena? Ziva. Ziva. Yeah. Yeah, she is a just, she's a deer magnet. This dog knows how to get there. So, you know, tracking dogs, is that's just always something that, uh, you know, I think when I hear we've got to call a dog in, either somebody you know, I guess the typical stigma is you either made a bad shot or it's a, it's a bad situation, but that's not always the case, is it? No, it's not, you know, shot placement, obviously, you know, most of the time if you shoot behind the shoulder, you get double long, you're going to get a good blood trail and you're going to find your deer. There's just situations where sometimes the deer just doesn't bleed. These deer, you know, deer are designed to survive and live, you know, mm-hmm. and in the wild mother nature is not very nice. Right. Mm-hmm. And so over, you know, they've just been able to, uh, figure out or not figure out, but they're just designed to live. They, their will to live is greater than, you know, anything out there. Almost, so I think if you've hunted deer for any amount of time, you, I mean, and you've shot plenty of them, you know, I mean, they will, I mean, I've, I've I've had them fall down right in front of me, and then jump right back up, and and they were hit. I'm these are heart shots, you know. And they're they're still they're gonna go another fifty to sixty yards if they can, you know. And it, it, on pure nothing but adrenaline. So, um, 
you know, I think a lot of guys, and this is what I, I see with people when it comes to shot placement. I think there's, there's a set of guys that says, you know what, no matter what, I'm going for the neck. And that, and I've even seen archery guys even say, I'm going to take them out of the neck. Now, I'll be honest, I'm more of a heart guy myself, you know, <laughs> you know archery or rifle. But um, I, I don't know. I mean, what's your take on that? I mean, you know, and you got some guys that, I mean, I've even seen, I'm, I'm, I'm new to, I'm a new to the archery game. I've only been a bow hunter for two years. So I know some guys, they prefer spine shots. Now that's to me, that seems more tricky than a neck shot. So over the years, hunting has changed, right? So back, you know, when our elders were hunting, a lot of it was gun hunting. There wasn't as much archery. And so you have the power behind a gun. So you had a lot of neck shots and, you know, high shoulder shots that would drop deer in their tracks. But hunting in America, it seems, has really pushed towards archery. A lot of the states, their rifle season aren't as long anymore. They're fairly short, you know, maybe a week, two weeks long. There's a few states that have some fairly long, you know, gun seasons. But, um, so you see like a lot of a lot of folks that are actually starting to go away from the neck shots and stuff like that. But right. they uh, there are still a lot of people out there to say the neck shot does it every single time. Mm-hmm. And for some people it does. Yeah, exactly. But the, from my experience in tracking, when someone calls me and says, hey, I shot this deer in the neck, he fell down, got up, took off. 99% of times we're not going to find that deer. Really? Yeah, it's when when someone shoots a deer in the neck, they just they they either get something very vital that drops them very quickly yeah. or it's all muscle and there's nothing vital and so they get up and take off that's interesting um, and it's the same thing with high shoulder shots if if you drop a deer in his tracks and he lays there for a while and never gets up I and mean, obviously you dropped him in his tracks he's done for but there's honestly there's nothing there vital except for the spinal cord on that deer and that high shoulder shot so if you don't make a perfect shot and separate or break that spinal cord and drop him in his tracks and all you do is knock the deer out then there's nothing vital up there to kill them all it is is bone and muscle that was going to be my very next question because i mean to me like i said there's when you pop him at the neck you're not i mean unless you sever that spine i mean like you said you're just getting muscle right and i mean and fur and fat and whatever else is there and some meat but that they can go on living just fine a muscle yeah. shot for a deer is nothing. You got to figure. Mm-hmm. You see deer that have you know cuts in them all the time. They're jumping over barbed wire to get cuts all the yeah, time. They're resilient. See, like even like elk, right? Right. So you yeah. see elk that get into these huge fights, and then people shoot them, and they find like a piece of antler stuck in their their neck. And elk antler is so thick and strong. You're like, it had to be crazy amount of force to break that off at his neck, and that thing is still living. And it's the same thing with a deer. I mean, right. anywhere in the neck, high is nothing but skin fur and muscle and deer are designed to heal from that quickly and they do yeah so you know and i think for the people out there that are you know well, i'm gonna you know i'm gonna neck them every time well i mean i think that's something you really should take into consideration i mean now i will say i was for a long time i would take full front i would take frontal shots i mean i just would <laughs> especially if it was like a situation where uh, no meats in the freezer, you know. <laughs> or if it was a target buck, I'd be like, well, I go ahead and I'm just not going to wait for him to turn. So, um, and I, I'll, I've taken those shots. I thankfully have not lost any deer doing that, but you know, 
Um, but anyway, I well, digress. Whenever, whenever I track for people and, and I talk to them about it, because we do talk a lot while we're tracking, because mm-hmm. while we're standing there in the woods, a lot of times in the dark, we're waiting on the dog to figure out the track and track through the woods. There's a, there's a lot of free time while you're standing there letting the dog work. So we talk right. about a lot of things. And, and folks are going away from next shots. You still have a small group of people that are just next shot, and they're fairly successful with it. But like I said, a lot of times, if I get a call for it to track a deer that's shot in the neck, um, generally, if they don't find it on their on their own, we're probably not going to find it. There's not a lot of vital stuff in the neck to, to hit or or slice or anything like that to kill the deer. So whenever I talk to hunters, I always tell them high percentage shots. And your high percentage shot or kill area on a deer is behind the shoulder and in front of where the uh, the stomach starts. Uh, and basically in the rib cage. Yeah. And a lot of people try to stick really, really close to the shoulder because that's what we're we've all we've had like ingrained into our minds. Yeah, you know, I'm the like, same way. Exactly. Everyone's like, stay close to the shoulder, stay close to the shoulder. And then you mentioned earlier you like to go for heart shots too. Mm. But when you start looking at the anatomy of a deer and the vitals, the where the heart is tucked and the amount of space you have to actually hit the it's heart, it's really small. It's very small compared yeah. to an inch or two, three inches behind the shoulder, and that you have all of that lung area in the rib cage. Right. And as you move back away from the shoulder blade, everything gets softer until you get to the back hams and the back leg bone. So if you think about it, your front up front, you have the hard bone in the shoulder and in the leg and all that. And when you hit that with an arrow, especially, you know, you're not going to get very good penetration. Mm-hmm. Behind that, you start getting into just the soft bone, you know, less dense bone in the rib cage or the ribs. And then you just have, you know, your hide and your very thin um, tendons and meat that, you know, surround and make the rib cage that are protecting the lungs and liver and, and the diaphragm, you know, between the the, um, the liver and the, the stomach or whatever. Gotcha. But, so I always tell people, especially with archery equipment... And even like you mentioned earlier, like oh, it's your it's that dream buck, and he's in front of you, and he's staring at you. Yeah, you know it may be the only opportunity that you get to shoot him. And you're like, I got to make this shot, but it's gonna be worse for someone to try and force that shot than to just let him walk off or let him give you a better broadside shot where you have a lot more room for error because your adrenaline is rushing. You know, he, he might be on high alert, so you're on high alert. You're, mm-hmm. You know, your heart's racing, you know, and you're not focusing on your shot as much like you are in the backyard or at the range where you're really focusing on your grip, you're focusing on your release. Everything is focused on killing that deer. And when he's, like you were talking about, facing you, all you have a lot of really solid bone facing you. You mm-hmm. have both shoulder blades facing you. You have all the leg face facing you. You have the bones that build up into the chest that make that brisket and all that in the front of that deer. So you have so much bone and hard muscle. Your kill shot to get through all that stuff into the chest cavity is really, really small. And even if you make a perfect shot, if the deer moves, because they're so quick, if the deer moves, then again, you're moving out of that, that higher percentage kills shot area or zone. So I always tell people, I say, I understand it's the deer that you've been after your whole life. It's yeah. the biggest deer you've seen in your life. Or you've been, you know, feeding this deer or managing a property and you've let this deer walk four or five times. He's five and a half years old, six and a half years old. Now he's facing you and it might be the only opportunity you get to kill him. But honestly, if you hit him 
and he runs off and you don't find him, that'll be worse than if you say, man, I had him right there, but, you know, consciously I let him go because I didn't have the right shot. Right. And then most of the time, unless he's on high alert, they're going to give you the opportunity to, to, you know, slip an arrow in behind his shoulder. Unless, right. unless he's on high alert or he sees you or something like that. But the high percentage shot in, in, in every situation, gun, crossbow, uh, bow, you know, it is behind the shoulder, inside the rib cage. So, Scott, I've got a question for you, and I've been actually meaning to talk to you about this for a while, but how did y'all get into the tracking dogs? Um, I, I was 15 or 16 years old, and a friend of mine that I was playing soccer with, his dad hunted and invited me to go hunting with him. And then we started hunting together, and then he got into tracking, and so I just naturally followed suit and started tra- doing it with him. He's like, hey, I'm going to start doing this, and if you want to – you know, do it with me, you can, or whatever. And I started in the Northeast uh, in Vermont. And in Vermont, it was very brand new. I think I was in, like, the, the second group of people that ever got tested. But um, you have to actually take a test to be a deer tracker. And wow. then you have to pay a fee to be licensed deer tracker. And then you have to, if you go on a track, you actually have to call either the game warden for the area that you're tracking in, or you have to call the state police dispatch and let them know that, hey, we're going to be tracking a deer. This is the hunter. I'll take that serious of maple country. Yeah, it was. Especially, <laughs> like, even in Georgia, you're not allowed to techni- You're not allowed to dispatch a deer during bow season with a rifle or a gun because it's bow season. Right. In Vermont, if you're a licensed deer tracker, when you call the dispatch and the game warden, let them know what you're doing, legally you can dispatch that animal during bow season with a gun because you're a licensed tracker. You've taken all the tests and paid the fees. Nice. I I had no idea you could do that. In Georgia, there's like very little to no laws or rules to deer tracking. The only thing you have to do in Georgia is follow the state laws on hunting. So if it's bow season and and you track a deer, you have to dispatch the deer with a bow. If it's gun season, then you can dispatch the, the deer with a, a rifle or a gun. Um, you have to follow all the trespassing laws and permission laws. You know, you still can't, you know, shoot deer in, in water and stuff like that. So you have to, although there's not really any specific laws to deer tracking in Georgia, you still do have to follow the laws that are put in place for deer hunting. So what do you do when the deer gets on someone else's property? So I I have two tools that I use. One, I use Onyx, and Onyx That's shows you all the property lines. Yeah. And then the other thing that I use is my Garmin Alpha 100. It's a handheld GPS unit that has bird's eye view overlaid or on it, and then it overlays the deer track on top of that. And now the chip that I have for my Garmin, my handheld, has all the property lines. And so as the dog is tracking through the woods, it draws a line over the top of the bird's eye view screen that you're looking at. And so when she, or when a dog, or when my dog's even, when she gets close to a property line, I know where she's at, and there's different tools built into the handheld. There's a shock collar, or there's a shock tool built into it, and then there's also a tone built into it. So the shock collar itself, or the collar itself, is a shock collar, a tracking collar, and a and a beeping collar. So when she's out there six, seven hundred yards, and I see she's getting close to a property line, or if I see she's getting close to uh, railroad tracks, or a highway, or road, or something, I can just hit that button that tones her collar, doesn't shock her, it just beeps at her, and that tells her, hey, you need to come back, 
And then I can tell exactly where she's been and I can touch the screen too, just, you know, like on X or it's, t you know, I can mark the spot where she was last. We can pull back, go find a property owner, see if we can get permission to go. You know, and a lot of times, sometimes the property owners, they don't give us a hard time about it. They're just like, yeah, go get the deer. Or a lot of the times I tell people, I say, hey, oh, if I track for them for, you know, a couple of years in a row, I said, just talk to your, your, the guys that are next to you on the land next year or whatever. And, and just get permission within a group and say, hey, if you, if we shoot a deer and need to cross the line, you know, it's okay. And, and just kind of reciprocate that. So, yeah, we talked about that on our episode with Ryan about, you know, the value of your neighbors. Yeah. I mean, I can't tell you, I mean, I, I've got a neighbor right now, a neighbor right now that, you know, we finally met each other last year and he's the nicest guy you'd ever want to meet. Pretty much we had that, we kind of made that gentleman's agreement right then and there said, Hey, you know, anything, anything, and it's turned into more than that. Now we're sending each other trail camera pictures. We're tracking the bucks that are on our, between our two properties. And it's almost like you're in a bigger hunting club in a way, because I mean, I, it's a, he, he has a private lease and I have a private lease. So, I mean, it's just, he hunts this one side, I hunt this other side. And I mean, it's, it's pretty cohesive and it's very nice. And I think a lot of people when you're, especially, I mean, if you're new to hunting, you're like, well, no, I, I paid for this land. I don't want nobody on, you know, I think that's a, the one of the worst things you can be as a hunter is like, not just be so stingy about it. You know, hey, if somebody else shot that buck, hey, good for them. Actually, you should get out of your stand, really. And yeah, go help them track it. You, I mean, it, it's a great, I mean, everybody, it, the point is somebody got the deer, you know, and that to me, that's what, that's how I feel about it. But anyway. Rare, rarely do we come up on situations where landowners say, no, don't go on my property. Now yeah. there's, and then a lot of times the hunter will know, like you'll say, hey, if we go to this, if we go this direction and we hit this property line, we're just going to stop because I know this guy and, you know, he's just not going to let us go on that property. And we know so that when we get close to that, I just, you know, we get to that property line, we'll go over there and we'll find blood or some kind of sign that definitely the deer crossed right here. We'll, you know, take a picture or mark it that way. Uh, you know, the hunter might be able to convince the other landowner, Hey, you know, if you come look at this, you can see, I'm not just trying to go on your property. You right. know, I can show you like where we started, where the blood is on the property line and that this deer did go on your property. And, you know, I'm not trying to like, you know, do anything mischievous or anything. Right. That's always been a, a you know, something I've wondered for a, a tracker. It's like, man, how often are you guys running into like, you just can't go on my property. And it's like, why would you do that? You yeah. know I mean? There's a dead animal over there possibly or a dying animal. You know, we're trying to find it, recover it. I mean, you just want it to die and rot. You know I mean? I just don't understand. I can't understand from the life of me, but to me, you know what, what I would want to know too, man, is like, when when you're out there and you do come across a guy that's like, hey man, I don't know these people from Adam. I've never called them. I mean, how what what's the what's that what's what's that rush like having to like find a phone number? Is that, I mean, is that usually like a whole thing or? It can be. Um, I generally try and tell them because you know we're gonna get into this on how long you want to wait to track a deer right. before you actually go after you you know go track them after you shot them. And say I tell the hunter, you know, it's a gut shot deer. We're going to wait eight hours. You've got eight hours from <laughs> right now to call all your neighboring property owners and say, hey, I just shot a deer. I think it's gut shot. The tracker thinks that we're probably going to cross your property line. Is it okay if, if we do cross the property line or if the deer crosses the property line? Is it okay if we go? So depending on the situation, you probably have anywhere from four to eight to six to 12 hours to contact all those property owners and get that squared away. But like we talked earlier, 
if you build that friendship with all the property owners around you mm-hmm. or the guys that are leasing property next to you, then you won't really have that issue. You already have their phone numbers. And be like, yeah. You know, you can call up and say, hey, Bob, it's John. You know, I I, try, I shot a deer, it crossed the line. You know, we're, uh, is it okay if we go track? And another thing, the reason I like for that to happen is, is a safety thing too, right? Oh, so absolutely. The, the middle of the rut here in Georgia, you know, it's November and everybody is woods. hunting, right? And, <laughs> and our gun season is is going on heavy and strong. So everybody that deer hunts generally is in the woods hunting in November. And so that if I'm tracking, <laughs> yeah, if we're tracking a deer in the middle of the day, and a lot of guys hunt late still, you know, they'll be in the woods 11, 12 o'clock, or they'll sit all day. And if we're tracking a deer at 11 o'clock and we cross the property line, my dog a lot of times is going to be six, 700 yards in front of me. And if we jump the deer and the deer, you know, walks out in front of the hunter and then the dog walks out, behind the deer in front of the hunter that puts my dog in yeah. a you know a bad yeah. situation because yeah. then the hunter's like oh i've got to because she actually kind of she's a like a, a grayish color so she could actually look kind of like a coyote right so, right exactly you know the hunter be like oh man that coyote just jumped my deer you know or you know the hunter didn't see the deer go by but then he sees my dog go by and now that I, you know we're putting my dog in a bad situation and i want to find every single deer that we track but I'm not going to put my dog in a situation where, you know, she might get hurt for one deer. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, I'm going to back out off of one deer till I can make sure that, you know, I can track for the next couple of years with her. You know, I don't want to get her hurt. On right, track. exactly. Yeah, you want to keep her in, keep her going. Yeah. So what kind of dogs are you using? So, um, I started out with uh, wired hair Dotsons when, I, when we were like 15, 16 years old up north because you had to track on lead. And... Tracking on lead is a little bit different, a, a lot different than tracking off lead, which is what we do here in Georgia. And so we, we started with the white hair Dotsons because they're a lot smaller dog. They're closer to the ground. They've got really strong nose, and they were you know originally bred for doing you know hunting and tracking. They're actually, I believe, they're bred to actually go down in badger holes and like fight badgers and get them Gosh. to come out of the hole because they're some... long and skinny, right? right? So they can fit down in the hole, but they can't turn around. So they got to stay there and fight the badger and bring them out or fox too you know mm-hmm. um but now um i'm i'm running texas lacy and a bavarian mountain hound and the texas lacy is actually the the texas state dog and they're a very versatile dog anywhere from herding sheep and cattle to hunting hogs with them to tracking deer i know guys that do trap lines uh with lacy's i've known a couple guys that have have trained them to uh alert when their child is you know if they have a diabetic child they'll oh. alert to you know when they're having a, an attack um I, i've known some guys <laughs> that have trained them to where they can smell and sense if someone has like a heart condition if their heart is going to act up they can sense that so they what? actually have trained their dogs to do that yeah so and you've crossed the those two breeds are crossed in this and, and they're the that is amazing. yeah the, the lacy is very versatile in that. and then some guys use them for you know, squirrel hunting, coon hunting, whatever. But, you know, obviously I use mine for tracking, so. I think that would be, like, the best, most ideal deer tracking dog. Yeah. And those Bavarian Mountain Hounds, that's a beautiful dog. Yeah, oh, yeah. so that that's the other dog that I use is a Bavarian Mountain Hound. They're from, uh, from Germany. Mm-hmm. And they were bred specifically for tracking wounded game. So. Wow. And we, you know, we get all of our pups from, from Germany and they're registered and their parents are all tested and all that. So, so they're coming from that same champion line of tracking. Exactly. Nice. Exactly. That way you keep your, from getting dogs that are just plain show dogs that don't have, that aren't proven to be actually hunting dogs. Like you wouldn't have a Shih Tzu go out and do that. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that'd be interesting to see. Though. I mean, I've, <laughs> over the years, I've seen all kinds of breeds, you know, tracking, really? you know. 
if someone is it takes the time and and puts that time into a dog, they can probably you know train about any dog to do it. Now wow. some dogs are going to be more successful at it because you know like the Lacies, they are, are a stubborn breed, and I think that's one of the reasons they do so well is because especially like Ziva, she doesn't want to give up on a deer. She wants right. to track the deer and she wants to find. So it's it. hard to get her to back out sometimes. It, it can be, but the thing is, is she's also very she's very smart. So when she knows that that deer has been shot and wounded to where it is going to die. You, it's very hard for me to like get her to to quit tracking. You know, like if I beep her, she's gonna come back to me. But she's gonna stay on that deer and work hard as you, as you can believe to find that deer. Um, and that's what you need out of a really yeah. good track dog. You need a dog that's determined, that's gonna stick with that track, not get bored, and not give up. Yeah, I know. I mean, if I'm calling a tracking guy, I want his dog to be relentless. You know, for sure. So, I mean, so we're going to backtrack a little bit. So we talked about shot placement and why that's important. But I think um, I I know the, the the school of thought, I guess, for most of us. I mean, I know for me, when I, what I was always taught is anywhere from 20 to 30 minutes after you make your shot, do not get out of the stand. Do not get out of the blind. Stay put. Focus on the last place you shot. Do not move. Now here i guess in the last four years i've kind of taken more of the well i'll wait 20 and go to where i shot it and then i'll at least verify i've got blood and if i feel like there's a good blood trail i may or may not pursue what are your thoughts on that generally i think most people when they shoot i think they have a pretty good sense whether they made a good shot or not right you know so if you feel like yeah i just smoked that deer Mm-hmm. Like, I made a great shot. I heard that pop. It's double lung. Like, mm-hmm. when he took off, I could see blood pouring out of him, you know. You know, you're going to get down, you know, 20 minutes or so. Go over there, check your arrow. Go back, call your buddies, wait for them to come over, and then you're probably going to end up tracking it together. Yeah. You know, you're only, like you said, you know, 20, 30, maybe an hour or whatever. Um, But then, you know, if, the, if you feel like you made a, a poor shot, Sometimes, like especially on a, a liver or a gut shot deer, yeah, they're they generally don't know what just happened, and a mm. lot of times you're gonna know that you you hit a little far back in the liver and the gut because they'll run off, you know, anywhere from sixty to hundred yards, and then stop, and they're gonna look around, and their 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 tails gonna be twitching, and then they're gonna slowly just walk off because really? they're feeling sick, they're hurt, they don't know what just happened, but they're not dead. Yeah. Right. And they're not like dying right right, right then and there. So yeah. they're like, man, something just happened. I don't know what it was. You know, he, he, you know, he ran 60 to 100 yards, got away from immediate danger. Now he's going to stop, look around, see what's going on, and then slowly walk off. From that point on, the deer is looking for two things. One, if they're gut shot, especially looking for two things. One is water. And the second thing they're looking is for thick cover. Really? Because they're hurt. And they're, you know, they're sick. They're not feeling good. They're going to start being dehydrated. So they're going to be looking for water. To cool off and for, for to hydrate, and because they're looking for you know thick cover to hide from whatever just hurt them. Mm. So from that point, they are they're only going to walk anywhere from a hundred to say two hundred yards from there. I usually expect to find a gut shot deer that has not been pressured or pushed from two hundred and fifty to three hundred yards from where they were originally shot. I mean, they just took a broadhead straight through their you know their guts or their liver they are hurt and they're not feeling good mm-hmm. and so they're not going to want to wander off through the woods six seven eight hundred thousand miles like they're hurting they want to find water and they want to find cover and they want to lay down and you know just 
recover. So from a right, a guy that shoots up with a rifle, you know, cause then a rifle is a little bit more of an explosive experience. I would think for deer. it's the same. It honestly, it's the, it's same, the same thing same. because I mean, you're the, the bullet going through, especially through soft material, isn't going to open up and do exactly what it would do if it hit like a hard bone or something, right. but it's not going to, you know, expand as much and it's going to zip through. And a lot of times, especially with uh smaller caliber, uh, rifles, uh, 223s, 243s, they're going so fast, the bullet's so small and so the diameter is so skinny that it actually just will zip through and you have a really small hole, which mm. actually makes it even harder to find yeah. than a, a two-inch cut broadhead yeah. that just cut a two-inch hole through the liver or through the guts. Right. So that that one can actually be harder and take longer to find than, than, uh, than a broadhead, actually, so... I don't know, man. You, you get it for rifle guys. I think we get into the worst, the worst debates about rifle caliber. I mean, you got the guys. It's either a six five or a six five Creed more versus a thirty. I, I don't know what the what the other the two two. I don't know. I, I don't even. I don't even keep up with it. It's so bad. But I don't know. Some people have these debates about it. But you know. But I mean, I shot a uh, hundred eighty grain all forever. But I noticed that the holes blowing into these deer, the bullet was going so fast that it just blew right through them. And I had like a teeny little hole and my blood trails were always so thin. I made a good shot and the deer usually, I always just do a quick grid and I didn't even have to really look for blood. I knew the deer would be laying there somewhere. But when I dropped it down to 150, slowed the bullet down just, just I mean, which is not much more, but some and it made a huge difference and I've started blowing some big hole, bigger holes in it, switched up the ammunition too. But, you know, but I, I noticed that, you know, like you said, when you're talking about those small holes, it's harder. That's sometimes it's even harder to find than it would be like a regular, you know, three bladed, you know, broadhead, you know, I, and you talk about gut shots, right? So I've always noticed when, you know, when, when you gut shot a deer, I've only ever gut shot a two out of the however many I've killed. I noticed like, I mean, it, they just seem to pour. I mean, just, not just only blood, but I mean, you're, you've got pieces of bile and all kind. They got all kind of crap falling out. You of can them. smell a gut shot. You can there. smell it. Yeah, that's the thing. You can oh, smell yeah. it. That's especially with archery, man. When mm-hmm. when you walk up, and you're like, man, that looked a little far back. And you get up to the air, you grab it. The first thing you're gonna do is smell it, and you can immediately tell that you got shot a deer. One, you're gonna have <clears throat> matter, green matter, chunks yeah, of food. That's what I was gonna say. The colors, all over the arrow and yeah. stuff like that. There's corn, acorn coming out of them. Yeah, or... yeah, corn. There's gonna be green matter from browse that they've been eating if they're you know feeding on grass or browse or whatever. It's, you know, it's just gonna have all that green matter all over the whole area and be like, yep, that's gut shot. So I made there... a mistake this past season. I took a liver shot on a doe with my bow. Um, she actually only went like 60, 70 yards and laid down. I got down too early and pushed her. Mm-hmm. And she went quite a ways. It was a rough night. I finally found her, but it was a rough night. After gut shot in the last one, I was like, I will never do this again. Like, I mean, it's broadside or nothing. I don't think point. anyone really tries for a gut shot. No, I, mean, no, right. I mean, that's one of those deals where it's like, dang it, better go. They, they, they took that last time. step right before exactly. you squeezed. <laughs> so yeah. that's that's typically how it, I think it ends up. I well, mean, the, the difference, too, though, between a gun and a bow, though, especially for the gut shot, right? The reason that guns are so... You know, successful as far as taking game is the concussion that they cause. You right, know, the, the impact. The, the impact, and especially when you hit hard bone, yep. you're gonna have a lot more impact and concussion. And it's gonna bounce too. Yeah, <laughs> it's just gonna cause a lot more havoc on that deer when it hits hard structure and then pushes through the body. Where 
the further back you get, there's less, you know, there's less dense bones in the rib cage. And then when you get actually into the gut and the paunch area, there's no bone hardly back there, you know, mm-hmm. unless you hit high in the spine or way back in the back leg, there's no bone back there. So that bullet, you don't have the same effect from that bullet that you would if you hit it hard in a, in a rib cage or, or if you hit hard in one of the shoulders or a leg bone or something like nice. that. So th- that's where I almost would rather track a gut shot deer that was shot with a bow because they're slicing and it makes a bigger hole than a gun because you just don't have you know when that bullet goes through it makes such a smaller hole there's it takes the deer longer to to expire because you didn't do as much damage if you sent you know mechanical broadhead or fixed head that's cut an inch and a half two inch you know three blade hole or four blade hole through that animal you're making a lot you're doing a lot more damage to that area than if you shot that area with the rifle Right. So. One one thing that I've noticed, so whenever you sh- take a bad shot on a deer, and that deer, usually there's a decent blood trail until that deer goes and lays down. And then once you spook it up, that blood trail, sometimes it doesn't even, there really is none. Yeah, and you're going to have, especially liver, like if you get a liver gut shot deer, you're going to have a pretty good, like you were talking about, you see them pour out a lot of times. That liver, you're slicing it open, you know, and it's just going to, it should pour a lot of blood I out mean, for you the would first think six to hundred They yards. would lose so much fluid that they just have nothing else left to go on, you know. That's always been, I was like, God, dog, man, this thing has got to be dead at some point. Yeah, <laughs> like, we've we've tracked some that, like, by the end of the track, we were covered in blood because there was so much blood. You know, we're walking through tall grass and stuff, and it was just bleeding everywhere. And, and you're covered. Yeah, you and you're, you're the covered. One covered in, and then at the end, we don't get the deer. And two weeks later, the hunter calls and says, Hey, I just got a picture of that deer on trail camera. I can't believe you lived. And you're like, There's no way that deer lived. <laughs> it's you know? But yeah, so like what, but like what you guys were getting at, like, especially with like a liver shot deer, you should have a pretty good trail up to the deer. Um, until he beds, and then when he beds up, especially guts too. When when they bed down for that first bed, everything starts to like mush together, right. and and then the, you know if they, when he was walking, he may have been stretched out a little bit. So when you shot, when he came, when it, when his body comes back together to the normal form, the skin actually will cover the hole. So then you know the blood and you know whatever's going to fall out of them if you hit them in the guts then it actually is blocked and it stays in the animal um mm. and then at that point that's an extremely hard deer for a human to to find because there's no visible um blood trail or anything visible for the human to track you know the only thing you have off that point is deer tracks and if it's in the forest you know you have leaves and then if you so, I mean, can't like, find it, like luminol is not even an option at that point. Right? No, I mean, there's nothing, there's no blood falling out of the deer. Right, so you've got nothing. Right. But, uh, and then we talk about that, but in reality, a liver gut shot deer is actually the easiest with no blood even is the easiest uh, wounded deer for a, a dog to track. Mm. When you shoot it, I mean, you can, you know, you can, as a human can smell the blood mm-hmm. and the guts and in that area and on the arrow. So imagine how strong that scent is to, uh, a, dog, to a dog, right? Dog, yeah. So as that deer walks through the woods, he's, that deer is leaving that invisible scent all the way through the woods. And that scent is very strong to a dog. So they can actually find that really, really easily. And if the deer rubs up against a tree or a branch or a sapling or something like that, and leaves that scent on the tree that aroma is in that area around that as the deer walks through the woods and you can't see it but mm-hmm. the dog can smell extremely easy and so the, 
a deer that's either liver or gut shot is one of the easiest deer to find because like you were saying Kelby, your deer only went 60 yards and laid down and that's generally what a deer is going to do that's liver and gut shot they're they're going to go from like we were talking earlier 100 to 250 300 lay down yeah and then if you leave them alone they're going to expire there hey guys it's mike i wanted to take a quick minute and take a break from the show and tell you about one of our partners fat boy blinds out of reynolds georgia fat boy blinds offers tower stands ground blinds deer feeders all kinds of different types of customizable window configurations for the blinds tinting ceiling you name it i'm telling you these guys are going to do it for you one of the best things I think about this company is they offer a actual staircase that goes up to their tower stands. I know for me, I have two small kids. Uh, I've got a dad that's not as mobile as he used to be. So this is a great option for my family. Guys, we spend a lot of time doing projects like a tower stand or a blind or a feeder when we should really be looking for scrapes, rubs, travel corridors, all the things that really do matter. A company like Fatboy Blinds is going to save you tons of time. To be honest, time is money. So why tie it up in something like a long building project that's gonna take you weekends, hours and hours of time. Even for those of you guys who are pretty handy, it's still a lot of time and effort. Also, one of the best things about Fatboy Blinds is if you're in the Georgia area, they will come to your property with your brand new blind standard feeder and drop it off exactly where you want it with their forklift. I mean, <laughs> how awesome is that? That's just one less thing you have to worry about having to do. Again, time saved. So guys, reach out to Fatboy Blinds in Reynolds, Georgia at 478-973-5315. That's 478-973-5315. Ask to speak to Walker. He's gonna get you set up. Uh, they're also on Facebook and Instagram. So reach out to him on any of their social media or just contact them by phone. Guys, get yourself a fat boy. Yeah, so that you know that it's a great goes into my next question, really. I mean, so, you know, when we you know, when we first get down, we talked about when we first get down and how long does it take? And I mean, well, we got we notice we have that small amount of blood. I mean, and we want and you're you're saying, you know, just depending on where really it depends on where the shot landed, where we think the shot landed. And that's how that really should dictate how long we should back out for. So I mean, so what 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 is your take on? Hey, you got this much blood. It's so, this then. How how and when 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 would you suggest backing out? So you got three different situations. You have a situation where you're tracking it by yourself without a dog. Mm-hmm. You have a situation where you're tracking it with a dog on lead, and then you have a situation where you're tracking it with the dog off lead. Okay. So if say you liver gut shot a deer and you're tracking it on your own without a dog, say. You're, you know, you go out of state or something and you don't know the area, you don't know how to get hold of anyone. You're like, you know, or, you know, whatever. You're just somewhere you can't get a hold of someone to track the deer. You want to wait 24 hours. Okay. And I know that sounds crazy, mm-hmm. but if you wait, even if the if you shoot the deer and the deer dies in an hour, it runs off 100 yards, laid down, dies in an hour, and then you wait 24 hours, whether you waited 24 hours if you wait 24 hours and you go find the deer and he's laying right there, then you find the deer. Mm. But if you don't and you jump him, then you don't get the deer. What I worry about, especially here in Georgia in the heat, um, losing my meat, Dagging waiting right. too long and not being able to har- you know, harvest my meat from the deer. So, yes. And, th- and that's a great point. Um, if it's a doe and it's gut shot, even if it's gut shot, I don't wait. We just go. Because if you wait right. four, five, six, seven, eight hours, 
by the time you get there, you're wasting your time anyways, unless you just want to get the deer and get it out of the woods because the deer is spoiled at that point. When it's 110 degrees out or whatever, there's 100% humidity in, you know, in Georgia, beginning of the bow season, the deer is going to be spoiled at that point. But so if, if you are tracking the deer by yourself, no dog, and you think you live or gut shot the deer, you know, like I said, 24 hours. Uh, gotcha. That deer can easily live 12 to 10 to 12 or 10, 12, 24 hours, depending on where you actually hit the deer, you know, high, low, straight through the liver, you know, just nick the liver into the guts, low guts and the intestines, whatever. That was all determined what, how long that deer's actually going to live. And then if you go in there too early, you're going to bump him and bump him and bump him. And, and if you bump him, you might see blood. And you're like, oh, that's going to give you encouragement. Then it makes you want to keep going. Yeah, yeah. And I'm then that the next, way. If I, if I get a good, solid piece of blood, I'm like, oh, it's on, son. It's, yeah. It's getting so then you then you push more. And right. You don't, and then you can't get yourself to back out. Even as a, a deer you know, tracker with dogs. I find it hard for myself sometimes yeah, to back yeah, out. Exactly. You know, I want to go. I'm like, I'm just gonna go over that little hill I mean, just to see what else is over there. I mean, and then, I'll be quiet. <laughs> yeah, you know. And then the deer was right there, and then you bumped it, and it ran off, and you don't get it. So that you know, you know, if it's liver gut shot, and that's know, the situation where you're on your own. That's you're on your own. So that just go overnight when you're on. Yeah, your own. yeah, overnight basically. So now, if you call a tracker and they say, hey, you know interview them you know ask them hey how yeah. do you you know how do you track whatever and they should have a game plan anyways so if i'm tracking with a dog uh, on lead with uh, a gut shot or liver shot it's it's going to be anywhere from you know 10 to 12 hours that that should be pretty good as far as you know the deer may not be fully all the way expired but they're going to be very close to where they're the not going to have much will to run. Yeah, they're not going to have much will. They're not going to have a lot of energy. They're probably just going to lay there and look at you and let you dispatch them because gotcha. they're just so sick and they're almost expired. They're just not going to get up. Yeah. And a lot of times, too, because the dog is on a lead, you're with the dog, and when you start tracking through the woods, when you come up to the deer, you have the opportunity to see the deer right then and there. Yeah. And so you can see the deer laying there, and you can back off. You know, however you're going to dispatch it, whether it's, you know, a rifle, a bow, you know, however you can dispatch it pretty quick. Um, with a dog off lead, I would, for a liver shot, four to six hours. Four to six hours, most of the time, the deer's going to be dead. Gotcha. From when you shoot it to when you get there at four hours, the deer's probably already been dead anyways. But it's giving that deer the extra time to expire to where you don't jump it and have to chase it all over the woods. So I, you know, I had a guy call me one time and, and, uh, he, he thought he, you know, he shot the deer or whatever. I got out there. It sounded like a liver shot. And I told him, I said, well, let's wait four hours because I think you liver shot this deer. And he's like, no, we got to go right now. Cause you know, I got to be home by a certain time for work tomorrow. Oh, and then I, you know, you, you tell him, I said, well, if we don't oh. wait, we may jump him. And then we're going to use that. We're going to be out in the woods the same amount of time. But if we wait, and let the deer expire, we're going to track it 250 yards from where you shot it, and it's just going to be there laying there dead, and we can get it out of the woods easily and quickly, quietly. We can get out of there right away. Versus if you go in too early with the dog off lead and the deer's still alive and the dog sees the deer and jumps it, and now you're on a chase, and if you chase it 1,000 yards or a mile or something like that, you may end up somewhere crazy in a swamp, you know, 1,000 yards from a road. So now you have a deer that is dispatched and dead out in the middle of a swamp and you're waist deep in water. And now you got to drag that, you know, 180, 200 pound deer all the way back out the woods. Now your, your, your night went from waiting four hours and an hour tracking to an all night ordeal. So if you had waited, 
You know, it actually would have been a lot easier. I charged the guy double, like, dude, I told you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, like, you know, liver, four to four to six hours. You know, generally the deer is going to be dead. And if he's not dead, he's going to be so weak that he's not going to be able to get up and really get away from you. And if he does get up, they're generally only going to be able to run maybe 100 yards or so. And the dogs can, you know, hold him or dispatch, or not dispatch, where they can bay him up and hold him for you. And they can stay with the deer. So if, if you jump the deer and it runs off by yourself, you can't stay with that deer because you're not fast enough. Right. The dog, if he jumps the, the deer up, they can stay on the deer and they know right where it went. And then when it gives up, it's right there barking and baying the deer so you know right where the deer ran to. So, you know, you, you can still get the deer. I guess when, you know, I'm looking at it, you know, from that point, I mean, whether that's either a heart lung what i mean it, like if you come up on it, it's like hey everybody's sure this was a heart shot or this everybody is sure and i know a lung shot's a different thing too because it's you know that's a whole i mean it seems like you know just about any part of the anatomy of a deer when you make that shot there's something different that seems to be happening like you lung shot you got the bubbles in it and then you and sometimes that can be a short track and sometimes that can be so bubbles can be a false uh, indication of a lung shot. Really? Yeah. So if you hit a deer in the shoulder and the deer takes off running, he's building up air inside that wound. And as the blood bleeds out, it's actually, it's imagine it pumping up, you know, that right. muscle pumping back and forth. It's pumping blood into that wound. And as the blood falls out, there it pumped air into the blood. And so then it falls out and there's small bubbles and it's sitting on the leaf with bubbles, and you're like, oh, I lung shot this deer. There's bubbles in this blood. Oh. But it can actually be a false indication where because you actually just hit him in the shoulder or, yeah. or you know, high that, in the back. You know, or I didn't think about like it. That. I've never thought about it like that. Yeah. Generally, like when I when someone says, well, I lung shot him because I saw bubbles, and I said, well, were they big bubbles or were they little bubbles? Because generally, if they're real tiny little bubbles, they're going to be like a muscle shot where oxygen was pumped into the muscle and into the blood, and then it fell out. I had no idea. Yeah, and then a lot of times, like when when they're like, "Oh, it was bigger," you know, bigger bubbles. Um, you know, it was lung shot because there's a lot of air, yeah, in, yeah, in that yeah. blood already from when you know it was in the lungs. So. I mean, would you say heart and lung are probably the best? I mean, if if you in, well, I don't want to say lung because I mean I've heard people go, "Well, it's lung shot. It's a bad shot." I mean, I, which is crazy to me. Because yeah, I'm like, if you the double, lungs. if you <laughs> you if you if you stay away from the shoulder and you send an arrow through both lungs. The deer's dead. Yeah, it's got to be. You know, if you if Hell, you, send if you it, shot it, <laughs> nine, and, and I say that ninety nine percent, there's going to be that one percent where someone's going to say, "Well, I shot a deer in the lungs and it did it was die." A lung. You know, so and and they can survive from some of that stuff. You know, a single lung shot. I've I've seen. You know, we've recovered deer with broadhead in the bottom of the chest cavity where, you know, there was scar tissue on the the heart where you yeah, know, they got a heart sliced. shot. I've yeah. heard I've heard of deer surviving heart. Like shots. I said, that's like the like the one percent or less than one percent. Right. But that's generally ninety percent or you know ninety nine percent. If you put an arrow through or a bullet through both lungs, that deer's dead. Gotcha. So I mean that's and you know a lot of people you know they try and go for that high shoulder shot. Mm-hmm. And again, there's nothing vital up there except for the spinal cord. And if you don't break that and if you don't you know disrupt that or break it it doesn't kill the deer all it does is it knocks them out and that's when i get a call and this guy says hey i shot the deer in the shoulder he fell down he kicked for a little while you know and then he got up and took off running i generally won't actually go track that deer Mm. if if we have a whole bunch of calls and the reason for it is because it i always talk about it like uh, a boxer getting knocked out right if he's in the ring he gets knocked out 
He's laying on the mat. He's having a hard time breathing. And eventually, all of his everything comes back together. His breathing gets regular. He his, comes to. He kind of stands up. Everyone kind of walks him off the ring. And by the time he gets back to the locker room, he's walking on his own. He's got his wits yeah. back about him. He's breathing normal. And that's generally what happens when you shoot a deer too high is it knocks them out and they lose their ability, all their functions, you know, and then they get all that back. They stand up, they slowly walk off or they wobble off. But by a hundred yards past where you shot them, they've got all that back and they're gone. Yeah. And there's, like I said, there's nothing high in the shoulder. That I've you- seen that a lot with hogs doing thermal hunting at nighttime. We've shot a lot of them and knocked them down and never find them. Yeah, they'll get up and take off and you'll find them. I mean, you'll see them again. You know? <clears throat> and yeah. those high shoulder shots, you know, I, I always tell them, I say, hey, you know, if we do take the track and we don't find the deer, and I always tell them too, like ahead of time, we most likely are not going to find this deer, but you did put a bullet in the deer. We just, you know, the deer deserves yeah. us to at least give, you know, the, the effort to go try and find it. And then, you know, we'll track it for a while. And then generally we're going to find it. Yeah. We're going to track it to where it went. I mean, you just put a bullet or an arrow through its shoulder and muscles. Like it's hurting. It does not want to just walk around the woods all night. Yeah. So it's going to walk off. It's going to lay down. We're going to find the deer. We're, you know, and it's probably going to jump it and it's going to take off running and we're going to chase it for a long time. And if we get up, if we jump that deer and we chase it and chase it and chase it and it never bays up and it never slows down and it's just gone, I, you know, I tone the dogs and bring them back to me and I tell the hunter, say, hey, listen, you know, like I said, I think you hit the deer high. There's nothing vital. You're probably going to see this deer again in a couple of weeks when he comes back to his normal routine. And that is what actually is what I consider the no man's land. You know, a lot of people gotcha. talk about the no man's land being underneath the spine, mm-hmm. you know, above the lung, in that space between the bottom of the spine and above the lung. There's no actual space there. So in, in my opinion, and what I always consider no man's land, is that area above the the, the knuckle or in the shoulder where the, the shoulder blade and the, the spine come together. That's no man's land. Because... There's nothing there vital except for that spinal cord. And if you don't break that and kill the deer instantly, there's nothing vital there to kill them. That's that's amazing, man. Like I We call it backslaps too. You'll you'll see people like reference like backslap, you know. And a lot of times you'll you'll know a deer's been backslapped or shot high like that because you'll get a picture of them and there's a chunk missing out of the top of their shoulder blade. And that's because (laughs) someone was trying to, you know, shoot that deer and drop him in the tracks. And it's a good, you know, good way to kill them because you drop them right in the tracks. But if you're off a couple of inches and you shoot too high, mm. you're not getting that deer. But if instead of shooting high, if you go, if you move your crosshairs or your pin back behind the shoulder, back into the lungs, and you double lung that deer, you're gonna that deer's going to die, dude. I'm telling you. See, there's so many things that go into tracking, and so many things. I mean, just. Just, I mean, and honestly, it goes back to fundamental deer hunting. Like, I think, you know, take the broadside shot. I mean, my target buck, I, I had him, I had this deep, I had this buck at 10 yards. I mean, it was a Mexican standoff. No offense. <laughs> but, but it was a seriously a Mexican standoff. And all I had to do was just quickly raise up, squeeze the trigger, and this, this buck was done. But he was front facing me. And I said, you know, I, I, I normally, I've never had that much self-control in my entire life. I mean, this is a, this is a, for me, this is the, would have been the biggest deer of my life. I mean, this is a 145 plus, which that's not a big deer for some guys, but for me, that's a giant. 
and and well, 145 I, inch deer is a big deer. That's a big deer. I mean, it's a. It's, There's a lot of guys out there that they'll not make, even see one, seen 145 inch deer, let alone killed one. So, yeah, 145 deer. That's a good yeah, deer. That's a, that's a stud. Yeah, yeah, I've never killed one. His, his, his name is. We call him Big Daddy Kane. And like, I mean, I'm just. It's just me and Kane at. He's at 15 or 20, and I'm in a blind. I'm in a like pop up blind. You know, like one of those chairs, and I, like, and I can't really move. But if I raise up on this deer, I can probably kill him. If I shoot him straight, you know, straight on, straight on. and normally if it hit, this was a doe and I needed the meat, I wouldn't, I would not have thought twice. Right. But because this is my deer that I've been, I don't I've had on camera for two years. I wanted to wait for the broadside shot. And when he, when he finally turned and I started to raise up, he darted and then he came back across and as soon as he came back across, I'm I'm starting to raise up, and he darted again, and then he got behind me. <laughs> but yeah. I'm like, and I go, you hesitated, and it, but really and truly, I don't really, I don't really feel about that bad about it because honestly, had I taken the that's what we talked about earlier, right? Yeah, the self control. Yeah. You, you've got you to feel have, better about not taking. That I shot do. I feel horrible. than wounding that deer and thinking about how you wounded that deer for the rest of your life yeah. and lost it. Yeah, what? and yeah, I saw him. I saw him this past year. I haven't seen him yet. He's in his summer range. Yeah. Preferably, he is in his summer range. <laughs> he comes back. He last year he he's probably he's probably at low one fifty. I'm pretty sure this year he'll be dead on one fifty or yeah. better. He's a beautiful deer. He's so, he's about he's about eight. And a let's half. let's go over the 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 wait times real quick because we didn't get through everything. Yeah, I, tell us the wait times. So let's do it kind of not basic, but let's go over it. All right, so you're tracking deer by yourself. You think that you got shot the deer twenty four hours. Twenty four hours. All All right. Right. Liver shot, uh, if you want to be safe, 24 hours, no problem. Got it. Um, if you think that you like liver or uh, lung liver shot him, uh, 8 to 12 hours. Uh, at that point, even if you jump him, he's probably going to be pretty hurt, pretty bad. He's not going to have a lot of energy. You'll probably be able to sneak up on him and dispatch him. He's probably almost dead. He's not aware of his surroundings like he would be if he was high alert. You'd probably get him. If you're tracking, uh, if you got, if you're tracking with a dog on lead, and you think it's a liver, uh, lung shot or lung, lung liver. Um, you're going to, a lot of it is going to be the same timing. So it's going to be that, you know, uh, 10, eight to 10 hours for the lung liver, uh, straight liver gut. You think, you know, you're going to want to wait that 10 to 12 hours. And then if you think it's straight gut because you're on lead and you, your dog's not going to be chasing the deer if it's still alive, and you're not going to have the ability for the dog to keep up with the deer and chase it. If you're tracking with a dog on lead and a straight gut shot, I would say be safe. Wait 24 hours. Go, or, you know, 18 hours. Just go the next morning even. That will be fine. You know, if you shot him at dark, plan to, to go track the deer at daylight. You know, that's yeah. giving him a lot of time, you know, exactly. to, to expire. 24 hours on lead, you know, liver, liver gut, you know, 10 to 12. Um, if you're tracking a deer with your dog off lead and you and we'll start from the front of the deer to the back of the deer if you're tracking off lead with a dog and you and you think that you shot the deer with in the leg somewhere all right immediately because really yeah because that deer is going to lay down pretty quick and you want to get the dog on it because there's not a lot of vital in that area my personal opinion is if a, a coyote or a couple coyotes can chase that deer down bay it and kill it then the dogs can then too. a dog can do it and if we dispatch it quicker and more humane than coyotes killing it yeah. then we're doing the deer you know yeah. a service right exactly 
Exactly. So if off lead with the dog, you think it's leg shot, you've got bone laying on the ground, you saw the, the leg flopping as he was running mm-hmm. off, immediately. The deer, you, you didn't get the lungs, you didn't get the liver, you didn't get the, the gut, you know, it, this is going to be a chase it and bay it and dispatch it out of for humane sakes, right? Mm-hmm. So as we move back, I mean, if it's, you know, lung shot, you're not going to, you shouldn't need a dog, but if you do, you know, four to six hours. Okay. Um, if you think it's liver shot, uh, it should have uh, dark blood and it should have a little bit of a stink to it. Most of the time, I i don't really ever see a straight liver shot because of the angles that you're, yeah. you're always shooting at. It's always going to be like a liver lung or a liver gut. And that right there with the dog, off lead, four to six hours. The, you know, the deer is generally going to be dead already. He's probably going to be stiff. They've been dead for a while. But at least you were safe and you still got your deer. Yeah. Uh, liver gut and you with more of a emphasis that I think it was more of a gut shot. You know, we're waiting six to eight hours. If someone calls me up and says, hey, Scott, you know, I just shot this deer. I think I gut shot him. Maybe a little little bit of lung or, or liver. I say, all right, well, I'll see you in six to eight hours. Gotcha. And that, that just gives, you know, that gives the deer time to expire, you mm-hmm. know. And I was, be safe about it. Because yeah. if the deer dies in an hour and you go find him in an hour, then you get the deer. If the deer dies in an hour and you wait in eight hours, then you still get the deer. Yeah. But if you go track the deer that's wounded after waiting an hour and you jump him, you don't get the deer. Exactly. If you wait the eight hours to go find the deer, then you get the deer. Exactly. I'm still learning every day about deer hunting, but I mean that, you know, you're talking about the, it, do you want to get the deer or do you not want to get the deer? Mm-hmm. That's just, yeah, I don't know. I think that's, that's just a question. I think the hunter has to ask themselves. Yeah. So leg shot with the dog off lead immediately. immediately. Um, lung liver four to six hours lung or gut is going to be six to eight hours. And then if I, if we, we think that it was like really low or really high or something that will give it high, you know, or give it more hours, give like more hours. 10, 12 hours. And a lot of times during the, the tracking or during the deer season, I call it tracking season. Cause that's what we do. That's well, pretty much what you're up yeah. to. <laughs> during the deer season, like, you know, we may have, you know, five or six tracks lined up. So even though I say six to eight hours, we might not get to it until 12 hours. Cause you got to figure every track is an average of three to, to five hours. By the time mm-hmm. you drive 45 to an hour minutes to where the guy was hunting, yeah. by the time you walk to where the guy was hunting, you put the dog on it, you track the deer if you have to chase it, dispatch it, then you have to drag it, then you have to walk all the way back to the truck, then you got to drive the hour or hour and a half to where the other track is, yeah. and then that continues on through the night. So you got to figure you got three, you know, an average of three to five hours between each track. And then some are super quick, you know, if, you know, mm-hmm. 60 yard track, you're in and out, you're gone, and you're on to the next one. But, you know, that we'll start to, uh, we'll start to line our tracks up based off of the actual, the wound and not by when we got the phone right. call. Yeah. You know, someone says, you know, I may have a gut shot that came in first, but then I get a second call and the guy says, Hey, I'm pretty sure I leg shot this deer. Yeah, you're going to the leg guy. Like, all right, I'll be there right away. I think that's a good practice though. If you feel like you're going to need to call a dog and you want to call a dog, and I think make the call immediately, I would think. Like I said earlier, generally when you shoot, you know if you made a good shot yeah. or not. Especially with archery, because you can visibly see your arrow. Yeah, and you're you are way more unless it was unless it was, you know, super dark and you shouldn't be shooting anyways. Yeah. You generally can see your arrow hit and you can say, Yeah, it looked a little far forward or yeah, I think that was back, maybe, you know, liver, gut and we sh- you know, and then you talk to the tracker and okay, yeah, let's wait six to eight hours, let's be safe and do that. Cause 
you know what? I'm exhausted. And I don't feel like chasing this deer all over tonight. You know. Yeah. Scott's pretty good at killing big deer too. He actually took two nice deer off yeah. WMAs I wanna, this year. I, I want to know the story of the nine pointer. I want to know the giant nine pointer. I don't. It wasn't this past year. You're talking so, about the public land. Yeah. I want to hear the story of the nine pointer first. The big so, giant nine. Well, his son I, I killed call, a good one too. Yeah, yeah I call yeah. him a mainframe eight because he was an eight point his whole life until the year I killed him. <laughs> so I, I still, he's I, still the mainframe eight. Yeah, I mean, we always, we always talked about him being you know whenever we were referencing that deer we said you know the big eight you know okay because he would you know all the way until the year i killed him he was five and a half when i killed him and 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 you shot him with a bow yeah his whole life he had like 11 inch brow tines and then the year the year i killed him he like instead of having that super long brow tine he had he put on a ninth point (laughs) <laughs> and then had a shorter he moved brow it. Yeah, he moved it was it like, around on you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I really wanted him to like just stay, you know, a clean eight. But so, so how did that hunt work out? Like, I mean, you did. I mean, was it like like an afternoon? Were you like in a hurry, or was this just tip, your typical day for you? Yeah. It, well, it, I mean, it, it's you know, it always starts a couple years before that, you know, right? And we started seeing, and we're like, this is going to be, you know, a huge deer. And as an right. eight pointer, you don't see eight pointers like this very often. Yeah. And, um, you know, the neighbors knew him and, and had seen the pictures of him and stuff. And, um, and I think they, they shot at, they actually did shoot at him. We tracked this deer really? the year before I shot him. The neighbors shot at him and skinned him over his back. And there nice. was some hair and I can't remember if there was blood in the food plot, but we tracked him, we jumped him and we did chase him for a ways on their property and then onto the farm and then back onto the property and a lot of times when I'm tracking a deer with the dogs, if the, if I can tell we're not going to get the deer and the deer ran off the property and then back onto the property, I call the dog off. Because mm-hmm. at that point, the deer's back on the property. He knows and he's going to stay there. But if you keep chasing that deer, eventually you're just going to chase him out of the country. Yeah. So then when, when the deer circles back and he's back in his home turf or whatever, mm-hmm. I tone my dog, bring her back. And I tell, you know, I told the guy, I said, hey, listen, I really don't think that, you know, you put a kill shot on the steer, we would have at least bait him up at least once by now. He's yeah. just running. So the that uh, that winter, we're um, cutting wheat and getting ready for, you know, whatever, and farming, and we find a shed. So nice. I know he made it. Yeah. Nice. So, you know, obviously that's the deer that, like, I cannot wait to get start getting pictures and trail cam mm-hmm. pictures of. And um, although I do run a lot of trail cameras, I like to watch the deer. You know, especially mm-hmm. on farmland, you know, in agricultural fields and stuff. You, you know, soybean fields, stuff like that. Yeah, I spent a lot of time during the summer. Even like last night, I was out until dark watching some deer last night. You know, nice. and you when you have trail cams out, yeah, you get pictures of them and you know right where they're at at that point. But where did that deer come from? And if you're hunting fields and stuff, you have to know like where they're coming into the field because that's yeah, you know, that's where that's going to give you stand location too. Exactly. So. And then it, I, I just like to watch them and get to know yeah, them, and, exactly. and you know, and figure out their patterns. You can probably pick up on their mannerisms and stuff too, in a way, because I mean, yeah. de- deer are very individual, especially mature bucks. Yeah, and this, and he was actually very particular. He would not eat out of a feeder. Really? On the edge, like on the edge of this, the, where I had him on these fields, and so if I put a feeder out, he would not eat out of it. If I put feet on the ground, he'd tear it up. He'd be there every single night. Wow. And I mean. If, if you put it out, he's eating it. It's there. You know, it's gone a couple of days. And uh, and so based off of the truck cam pictures you know, and watching him, there's, and this farm has is broken up on two sections. There's a main road that goes through it. And he was on, 
the north side of the property in this northern field. And I watched him there like all summer. And opening weekend, I take my son Connor to a WMA to just see in the morning because mm-hmm. he was in the field, you know. He would go out in the evenings, feed all the way, and then in the morning he's coming back. So we're not going to hunt that field in the morning because he's already in the field. Mm-hmm. And if you try and sneak in your stand, yeah, you're he, most likely going to spook, spook him out of there. Mm-hmm. So I just grabbed my son Connor. We go to a WMA where I know there's a bed in there. You try and catch some does and stuff, come back, try and get his you know, his first kill. Mm-hmm. So we had a good morning. We saw some deer or whatever. And we're headed back home, and my buddy Danny Sanders uh, calls. And he says, hey, uh, the neighbor shot your deer. <laughs> and that I was, sounds like Danny. <laughs> I, yeah. And I was like, what? You know, I was like heartbroken, you know? Oh, he's like, He's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, they shot that deer. And I was like, no way. And it, I was like, send me pictures. I don't believe you. And uh, so he goes, all right. They didn't kill it, but they did shoot at it. Like, Again? Opening. So this is the second yeah, time. Yeah, so this is Todd's son's. Uh, this is Todd's uh, son, Smithson. He's, I think he was 12 at the time. Oh, gosh. Him and another, I think a 10-point had worked their way out of the field and into where they were hunting, eating acorns, and had him at 20 yards and missed him low. Oh. So, you know, that's kind of a rough situation for him, right? Dude, like, he's... Yeah. Alert. Yeah, and so at this point, I know he's being hunted by the other guys, and I'm trying to kill him. And what I did at this point with that deer is I used my trail cameras to see where he was at, but I actually used them to see where he wasn't at. Oh. Okay. So at that point, he was in that northern field, and all of a sudden, I didn't get him on camera anymore. It was like three days in a row, and I didn't get him Uh-oh. on camera. And I was like, okay. Oh gosh. The you know, kid he, did hit him. Well, no. What? I, what? <laughs> What I thought it was, because they said it was clean miss. What what I was figuring is, from my hunting him and the neighbors hunting him, we pressured him yeah, out of that area. Yeah, it's hunting pressure. So I hadn't seen him. You know, I've been hunting the field. I haven't seen him three nights in a row. The, the neighbors shot at him. He's feeling pressured. And I know this deer. I've watched him for the last, you know, two, three summers. I know where he likes to hang out. Mm. And so I, I said, if he's not here, he's in this other field and... I know where he likes to come out, and I know what, the pattern he likes to take to go out into the middle of the field to feed. And the bad thing, though, was the wind direction was always blowing back into the bedding area. It's, and it's so you can't hunt it. in Georgia. Yeah, so you, you can't hunt this spot because there's like two different bedding areas, and the wind always blows back into that bedding yeah. area. So what I did was is I went and I sat there on the side of the road and waited for the wind to change. And when the wind it, when the wind changed and started blowing out into the field, I actually ran to the stand and got up in the stand right after the wind changed. And so, it, and that was all based off of thermals. You know, mm-hmm. as it, as it cooled off, the the winds changed, and instead of blowing into the bedding area where I figured he was, that I knew the wind direction was going to change and start blowing into a different area where I knew that it wouldn't spook him. Mm-hmm. And so, as soon as that wind changed, I ran, gotten in the stand, got set up. And I was there for maybe 15 minutes, and I started seeing the herd of does that would were that he normally hung out with in that field, and they started piling out. Oh yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, all right, you know, if he's in here, he's coming. If this is where he, if this is where he went, this is you know, this is where he's gonna be. And sure enough, I I kind of leaned out and looked down there's the field. There he was. And you know, when you see a 150 inch, you know, eight pointer basically coming straight at you, that's 20 inches wide and mm-hmm. 13 inch, you know, tines, G2s, and you know, 12 inch, you know, G3s. I mean, he just looked enormous. You know? Yeah, it's, it's, it's so, a Hartford elk coming out. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't believe it though, you know. Like yeah. I've been, you know, I've thought about this moment for so long and you know, planned for it and then all of a sudden there he is and it's actually happening. Like I was like, this probably So do you have a bow or do you have your rifle? Oh, I had the bow. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And uh he he took the one trail and you know, all the does that got to this one point in the field and and I, I've noticed over the years that deer tend to feed in one particular area on a field. And so I kinda knew mm-hmm. exactly like where they like to you know get to in this field and then they turn up and go out into the middle and i knew that that's probably what he was going to do and the does were actually like three or four rows further away than what i was comfortable with shooting and i was like man i hope he doesn't follow that same row but he was like i think he was four rows even shy of that so i was like all right he's in boat range oh yeah and, and so he got to that spot and you know let the arrow fly so how far did he go Oh, uh, it was kind of a it was kind of ordeal. We did end up tracking that deer. I was about to say, did you have to call the dog? <laughs> yeah, we did end up we did end up uh, tracking that deer. But um, luckily, out of all the tracks, you know that in the time and the experience that I put behind her, you know that experience to work that night and was able to recover. So that were deer you able to me. control yourself about having no. the way this <laughs> no. That was going to be my thought. I was like. You know, the tracking dog guy's gonna tell you, right, and I look, it's 12, it's twelve hours for this, it's 20, yeah. it's overnight for this, but when it, but when it's his one hundred and fifty inch deer, yeah. <laughs> we're going immediately. I either felt like I either made a really good shot or it was a leg shot, and we need to, we actually did go after that deer right, right. away because it was like it's either he's gonna be dead right away or it's gonna be a leg shot. So yeah. it so. ended up to be a kind of an ordeal, but we ended up getting him. I, I I've never cried after killing a deer before. Oh, I would have cried. I'm, I, I'm best believe I'm crying at my this first year. This year I did though. There were so many emotions because oh, you know you go from you know thinking you made a good shot to oh, man I didn't make a good shot to then you're tracking with the dog and then and then you go to man we're probably gonna end up losing this deer you know and, and then I have to it's keep hunting him. Coaster, oh yeah, man. and then it's we the ended up getting coaster. him and you know then I had you know I had Danny there and I had a really good friend Matt there and I had just I had a lot of really close friends there at that that time That's to really best, celebrate man. it with me oh yeah. my god you should have videoed yourself crying like oh Tommy. I know because we couldn't because like, it wasn't because Kelby would have made fun of you like, remember that time you cried when you shot that deer yeah no when I say I cried it, it, it I mean I had I had tears and I, I was very emotional but oh dude I'd be emotional too man you're gonna see me ball like a baby did, did you have snot coming out your nose no. like yes, Tanner did yes. I wasn't a Tanner I was not a Tanner Edenfield situation. Oh God! But it was. Careful, we're trying to get Tanner on the show. <laughs> Just kidding. That would be great. We, be we, need, great to, we need to get Tanner sure. on the show. No, he's no. Great. I remember seeing that that video of Tanner. I, I'm proud of Tanner because he's. Uh, uh, I mean, that, that was. You know, I mean, I got where these emotions were coming from. I mean, Tanner's I a dedicated so hunter. And I was like, yeah. I mean, he's the ideal. You know, when I I wish I had the drive he had when he when I was his age because well you know he's he's early twenties and he owns his own like several of his own businesses and he has one of the most like prominent painting companies at less than twenty five years old and he has his own YouTube channel runs his own company and then runs it to where he can take the time he loves hunting so much he take the time off every deer season to go to the midwest and leave for weeks yeah at a time I know. He, and doing those out-of-state hunts i don't yeah. see how he does it he's hunting all the time i don't Dude. see how he keeps a wife at home oh uh, yeah i mean they're not exactly married i don't think exactly <laughs> well they're engaged i mean yeah yeah, yeah. he has the, the, the knot's still not tied no the knot is not tied <laughs> no but yeah i mean no, i got a whole lot of respect for tanner and you know to me i think that's really to me honest i mean that's he seems like a really everyday your typical hunter guy. I mean, you know, he, my, my dad put it so great. 
He said, man, you ever watch that old Tanner Edenfield show? He, he, he watch his shows, man. He drives that piece of shit truck and that piece of shit four-wheeler out there. Man, but I tell you what, he gets it done. <laughs> so, and I said, you know what, man? That's prob- that is the best description of that guy. Yeah, I mean, because that's, I feel like, I mean, that's me. I've got a piece of doo-doo four-wheeler in, right down below us in the garage, yeah. and I'm telling you. I mean, that's, but that's, that's everybody, you know? If there's, if there's one person that really puts that effort in, you can definitely say it's Tanner. Yeah. Between the video editing that he does, that he puts the time into actually yeah. editing the video, to the, the amount of time that he puts into videoing the hunts, the amount of time that he puts into prepping his areas, you know, he he's dedicated I, to I, it. I love sure. the trouble he gets himself into. Oh, like yeah. when, when, when he had one of his cell cams, like almost submerged in water, and I think he had to... Well, I had to call the buddy to come get me pulled out of this mud. And I was just like, you know what? That's what would happen to me. I swear. Like, that's why we do the podcast, because I can edit all of my mistakes. <laughs> Sound almost perfect. But then, you know, but this guy, that's what I love about watching. He puts videos. it all in there. It's, it's all there. And when I love it. He flipped it. a floor, four-wheeler on himself. He put it in there. Yeah, leave it in, dude. And, and, yeah. and God Bless him for Falls it, asleep man. in his truck and sleeps in late, puts it in there, drops his release. I love, yeah, I love drops that. his arrows. Well, I fell it's asleep all in the truck and I like, yeah. you know, and some guys and, and I and there's you know, there's the key bangers out there that are gonna say, like, what you know, you fell asleep in your truck, you're not dead. I mean Yeah. But you know, that's a real hunter, dude. That's that's real deer hunter. We'd right? all be lying if we, yeah, if we all were, said say, that none of us slept in on teeth. accident. Yeah. Yeah, I have slept dude, I have slept in, I've fallen asleep in the stand. I'm not afraid to say it. Yeah. Dude, for sure. I mean I mean, I'll be honest though, you know, my dad my dad'll tell you the biggest deer he's ever killed in his life, the one the the hundred and thirty inch deer that he shot, I mean he fell asleep with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth and he shot it and he killed it. You know, like just that just happens, you know. I mean, things happen like that, but I think that's we all love Tanner. I think we can say we all love Tanner. That's yeah, the Tanner Edenfield. That is your that is your shout out on the Thirst Podcast. That is for, there that you is, go. That's for you, buddy. Yeah. But um, so Kilby, we gotta talk to Scott about ASA. Hold on, I got one more thing. Tell us about your son's deer. Yeah, was that the public land deer? No, that was on the same farm that I killed that was the, the, same farm. the okay. big eight that it was a nine. I do but, want to hear about your public land deer. Yeah, but. you know, all my kids, you know, they hunt. And um, Connor was just very, very determined to kill deer with his bow. And he still, you know, he still bow hunts and everything. But he worked really hard for two years to kill that deer. And being young i told him that we it has to be the perfect setup because you have that on video oh yeah yeah it's on okay. his it's it's on tanner's youtube channel oh, okay yeah nice. yeah for sure but at all the deer that i track and and see bad situations and stuff i didn't want connor's first bow kill to be a bad situation right. i wanted to give him the best opportunity to be successful as possible right and um and we had a lot of opportunities to kill deer and shoot well i say kill to shoot deer but it wasn't the best angle it wasn't the best opportunity i told him we need a broadside shot with the leg forward so that the entire lung and chest you know cavity is exposed and there's no shoulder or leg bone in the way uh and he was you know super super patient i even tried to put him actually on the big eight a few times he just never showed up but mm-hmm. um and there was a, a time the season before we we had a huge buck he he was a really really wide uh nine pointer and he walked within 20 yards. He was right there. I mean, I could see him plain as day. Mm-hmm. I got it on video. I'm like waiting for him to shoot. He's drawn back and he lets down. 
And I said, what are you doing? And he said, I can't see him. And that right there told me that, like, you know, he's ready to actually do this because, yeah, you know. He, he can make the hard decision to draw down. I mean, that was a deer that, like, that was a, a <laughs> sure enough trophy deer. Right you there. would have put him down for uh, sure. And he, you know, he let down because he couldn't see his pen. But the next year, I mean, every chance he got to be in the woods, he was in there. And he put the time in. He, you know, he can, he'll throw a climber on his back, haul, haul it into the woods, put it on a tree. I mean, he was 12 years old at this point, climb, you know, hauling a climber in, putting it on the tree, climbing the tree by himself. You know, he's got his safety harness. He does all that by himself. And um, that day we were in lock-ons, but, you know, we'd been feeding some, you know, obvi- we, you know we feed the antler extreme. And so right. We had an antler extreme and a corn mix in front of us. And, you know, the doe came out with, with two yearlings, and, you know, he put a great shot on her. And um, we always, even when they're our own deer, even if we think we made a good shot, we always put the dogs on them for training purposes. And oh, just absolutely. So, and then I let him just, you know, run the show. You know? Yeah. He had the tracking, you know, the GPS in his hand. He he controlled the dogs. He let them do it. And no. the deer didn't run, but like 40 yards and crashed. When we heard it crash, you know. Is this but, your same son that had the one, uh, the one video with you guys hunting? And I think he, I think he, I think he broke up pretty bad. I think you're all rifle that, hunting. Is that is that your is that was it? Jackson? Okay, that yeah. was yeah ha, yeah. But that was a great deer that he took, if I'm not mistaken. Well, no, we passed it. It was a 140 inch three year old. That's what it was. Okay, and he hadn't killed a deer yet, and oh. so and, but it was it was 140 inch three year old. You know, I mean that's that's a possible like 160, 170 yeah. in a couple e- of years. Easily. And we had we had a lot of like 100 inch eight point deer that would be a great first deer. You know, gotcha and. In hindsight, 2020, I wish I would have let him shoot the deer. And I won't ever do that again. You know? <laughs> I really don't have any more situations that that'll come up again with any more kids because I don't have any you know kids coming up again like that. But I do feel really bad. But, yeah, um, you know, the deer came out at like 60 yards. And I knew what deer was immediately. And he's sitting there looking at the deer through the scope. And, and he says, Dad, I, I got him. I got him. I said, well, you can't shoot him. And he says, no, I got him. I can do it. And I, and I was like, no, like. I understand you can, but we're, you know, got to let this deer walk. And uh, I feel really bad. And honestly, as a father, that's probably one of the times where, like, I regret one of my decisions. Yeah, you know? exactly. I wish, you know, it, you know, 40 years from now, it's not even going to matter. So I wish I would have. He's going to, that, that kid's going to murder at yeah. least 100, two or 300, 150 yeah. inch deer before he's 20. So yeah. it's going to be fine. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, Scott, he he works our ASA booth. He's really passionate about it, and he's he's out there putting in the footwork with all the with with all of our shooters. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it seems like they're really a family. Yeah, uh, the obsession shooters. Yeah, I've actually been out there with him. He knows all of them by by name, and uh, and he does a really good job. I um yeah, I love doing it. You know, I started doing the ASA stuff. I think five, four or five years ago, and um. My my whole deal is is if I meet you we're we're friends yeah. and then if we're friends we're family exactly and um, I want to do everything I can for the guys that are shooting for us and even if you're a friend of mine and you don't shoot for us I'm still you know want to do whatever I can for yeah. you but yeah for sure you know that means a lot to me we spend a, a lot of time in between the shoots getting stuff prepped for the shoots and you then, guys go everywhere yeah all over the country like it's not just down the road i mean in georgia you guys are going indiana uh well we everywhere yeah illinois uh kentucky tennessee um alabama 
Yeah, you know, Georgia, Florida, we all have a place for it. So it's, yeah, it's sure. tough work. It I, I've been out there and done it, and I don't know if I could go to every shoot like he does. It's a, it's definitely a commitment because you know, with being in the in the guard, I have to give up one weekend every month, right? And, and so during the summer, you have a shoot every month. You know, you have to focus. So that's two weekends out of every month that you have planned out already. I was working at Obsession, and I remember seeing you come in. You're you're still in your fatigues, and you're like, you're, that was, you're, you're, that you're was today again. Yeah, yeah he, he, he was uh, he was at Obsession today. Yeah, he, yeah. Was, he was still in fatigues. He was like, like he just left the base, and he's going straight to Obsession to pick up the table yep. and bows and all kind well, of stuff. Yeah, you know, like I said, you know, if you're one of my friends, you're one of my family. So I love. I love that aspect of it. You know, obviously, I really, you know, I love the bows. They, yeah. They're a great bow. They, sh- you know, they're super fast. They're forgiving. They're, you know, they're everything that you want out of a bow. But I think the key thing about obsession that brings us together is that I try and make it to be more of a, of a, of a family and close friends situation where, yeah. I, it, you know, if you're part of our shooting staff, you're part of our family. If you don't win every tournament, you're still you know you're still our family and that's not what is like super important to us the fact that you're out there being with us representing us in a professional you know respectful way that's you know that's what's key and and being really close and and, and i guess you know we've talked about that whole family aspect is you know we're at the shoots we shoot all day we hang out at the booth you know i make sure that everyone's invited to dinner afterwards because awesome. a lot of these people, you know, a lot of the folks that we see at these shoots, we're all spread out from different states. And so it's an opportunity for all of us to get together in one location to, you know, see each other and, and hang out, you know. I mean, yeah. it's one thing to call and text each other, but, you know, to get to hang out and, you know, sit at the, the you know table at a restaurant and just talk and talk about, you know, hunting or whatever's going on in yeah. your life, you know, so. So, I mean, when you guys do these ASA, is it always, it's always a 3D shoot, correct? Or is it, is it target? I mean, what, what are. Yeah. So ASA is, is all 3D, you okay. know, and it's, you have all the different classes and different ranges for all the different classes and, you know, and the, but the scoring is all the same as far as the 10, 12, 8, 5, you know. That's awesome. So, I mean, and when you're doing these ASA shoots, I mean. How does one become a shooter first? I mean, we're all connected through obsession, obviously. I mean, yeah. this almost could be the obsession podcast. But if you're, if you say you're an archery guy and you're like, hey, man, I'm pretty cracked 3D shot, you know, I can, I feel like I could make this happen. How, how does a person who's like a really good, they're really good at 3D shooting, how do they get into like a pro, uh, pro staff shooter situation? What would you say do, doing what you do? Well, there's, there's, there's two things. One, we notice people that, you know, shoot really good. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, we, you know, we do notice that. Um, most of our staff comes from uh, referrals. You know, okay. like, you know, we have some guys that are have been with us for a long time. And then, you know, they'll say, hey, you know, I've got my friend John. And he's, he's a really good shot. You know, he's interested in the program. And then we'll talk and, and then, you know, bring them on to the to the staff program. And then there's times where, like, if I'm out shooting and I'm talking with someone in my group and they're interested and we get to talk and stuff and, you know, they're like, hey, you know, I'm interested in that. And then that's another aspect and another way that, you know. So it's almost to- kind of, it's almost networking. Oh, really. 100%, 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. Honestly, networking. I mean, we're looking for guys who are, of course, good shots. Um, they got to go to all the tournaments. We want to see you know, you know a good presence out there. 
um, and a, and a good social media presence also. Yeah, I mean, definitely repping the brand is that's a thing. You know, I mean, yeah, it's great if you have a great scorecard, obviously, but yeah, yeah, but when you you know if you're representing <laughs> obsession, right? You know, we want people out there that are very friendly, yeah, very talkative and approachable. Um, more so, you know, it's great that you win, but if you win and no one likes you and you're not approachable, then you're not really helping. Yeah, it's not that you're no use. It's just. <laughs> You're, more, you're no use. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're not useful at all. Yeah. No, I mean, and I think that's true with anything. I think all of us pro staff for scrape juice. I mean, and 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 it's like no nobody. I mean, I I talk about scrape juice as much as possible because I believe in the product that much. But I think you know, anytime you're representing a brand or you're, you know, I think a lot of guys, a lot of hunters, is like, man, how do I how do I get on a pro staff? And if your whole soul motivation is to get free stuff, that's not a good pro well, staffer, in when, my opinion. When you pro staff, it's an agreement between you and the company that's manufacturing a product that they're going to provide you. And when you get down to the, the, the nitty gritty, right? Like mm-hmm. the down to earth, like all right, this is the deal. Um, you use my product. You love my product. If you represent my product and my company well, then we're going to, you know, offer you yeah. the product at either a discount, discount or, or free. free. And, and I mean, that's the down and dirty part of it, right? But then you have to understand that, like, the drive that a lot of people have that are pro staff becomes more because of that friendship. Yeah, you know, it's like even definitely. like like with Dennis. I mean, yeah, when he started that company, a lot of the folks that were first pro staff were a lot of his really close friends because exactly. they wanted to see him and the company succeed. And after a while, when you pro staff for a company, it becomes more of a friendship family situation where like you're all in it together type thing. Yeah. I mean, and all of us have a close relationship with Dennis, Dennis Lewis, Mm -hmm. for those of y'all don't know, Dennis and Angela Lewis, they are, you know, the founders of obsession bows. And also they started scrape juice. And, you know, again, we, we've talked about them on Ryan's episode even. I mean, it, you know, we talked about BFO. We talked about setup. And there's a lot of gimmicky things out there. But that's the only thing I've ever seen. I was actually I was actually wearing the BFO as a cover scent the night I killed that big Dude, I'm telling you. I mean, I it's literally, magic. <laughs> I literally walked down. Like, I, there's a, a, a road that separates the wood line and the field line. And I yeah. literally walked down that road. 20 minutes before that buck walked out Pow. into the field. You know? Yeah. Well, for y'all listening, I mean, you can hear how we're all talking about how much we love that product. I mean, it's not just, and the people who, yes. who, who made it. And and y'all know just in the outdoor industry that even the really big famous people, they're just looking for the $250,000 check or whatever it is they get paid to rep something. And, and you get on these shows, well, it's such a great product. Well, then the next season of the show, they're repping another great product and to me that to me that takes all the credibility out of that person yeah you know and i think in the outdoor industry i mean i think we should all are I mean, people who are consumers like you know because i'm still a consumer i don't want to i don't i would <clears throat> look at that person and go you know dude, you're full of it like i'm not gonna believe anything you, you try to sell me but if it's a guy who's been with that company for years and years and years and he's stay or she stood behind that product for however long and they still love it and they have that family connection too, like you're talking about. I mean, they're really ingrained with that. To me, that's the best type of sponsorship you could have. And I think, you know, I mean, I think as hunters, 
that's something to pay attention to. Yeah, generally the best way to start out is by using the product first. Exactly. And it's believe it, in it. And you don't have to kill like you know, if you shoot an obsession or if you're using BFO or any product, you don't have to kill the most and the biggest deer. Right. But if you're using the product and you believe in the product and then you suggest it to your friends, mm-hmm. you're already pro staffing. Yeah, exactly. So and then once you become like an official pro staff, right. You know, or you're on a sponsor team or whatever like you know, like that. Mm-hmm. I think you have more pull than a TV show host because easily. And this and this goes back to the ASA stuff too, right? So yeah. you have your 3D, sh- your, your guys are shooting the National Pro-Am Tournament and right. are dedicated to shooting 3D tournaments. Mm-hmm. These are the guys that know bows in and out. Yeah. They spent all summer shooting their bows every single day while you were at the beach. Yeah. They were shooting their bows while you were on your, you know, your all your other vacations. Their summer vacation was shooting their bow. And they spent, instead of going two weeks to the beach, they went to... You know, Metropolis for a three-day trip. They went to London, Kentucky for a three-day trip. That That is their vacation. Right. They are the experts, and they are the experts in their peer group within their local areas. And they, you know, and they all come together at an ASA a pro, you know, an ASA shoot. Everyone shoots, and then they go back to their local areas, and they have peer groups that listen to them. Mm-hmm. And so... You are more... A, a, a consumer is more apt to listen to that expert... Mm. The guy that shoots 3D at ASA, and everyone says, "Oh yeah, that guy goes to you know he goes yeah. shoots ASA for you know for Hoyt or or for Obsession or for whatever, right?" Yeah. So they, you know, when they're sitting at the bow shop and they're talking about you know shooting and they're talking about all right, well I shoot Obsession and this is why I shoot Obsession because when I'm shooting it's forgiving, it's quiet, the draw cycle, it's got a great back wall, mm-hmm. you know, and then the guy that's that looks at him and says, "Oh, that well, he's the expert. He's not getting paid to tell me yeah, that information." Exactly. He shoots Obsession because that's the bow he chose out of all the other bows on the bow rack. Right. And so that right there I believe is way more yeah, um, it's way more pull than a TV guy. Way more pull than a TV guy. And for people who don't know what BFO is, it's made by Scrape Juices, Bow Hunter's Fatal Obsession. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Get some. I'm telling you, you'll 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 not regret it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know. We sound like a walking where this whole podcast is basically a scrape juice obsession. We are not so, getting paid by scrape well, juice. Oh yeah. They haven't <laughs> Dennis and Angela haven't given me a dime. <laughs> Not since 2018, at least. <laughs> but that was how I paid my bills when yeah. I was the, a purchasing agent. So, but uh, anyway, Scott, so we talked a little bit, you know, we talked about, you know, tracking. We talked about uh, a little bit about ASA. So, you know, you also, out of your many jobs that you've got, what is your connection with Antler Extreme exactly? Um, I've just been with, you know, Antler Extreme uh, or with Danny doing feed from day one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we started out wanting to grow the biggest deer on the properties that we were hunting. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were, you know, feeding deer, managing deer, and we weren't really getting the results that we wanted. And so we originally started out going to design our own feed. And then uh, Danny got connected with the guys with Antler Extreme and uh, brought it down here to the southeast. And that's uh, that's how we started. Our goal was to find the, the best product to feed our deer to grow the biggest deer. Right, right. You know, and so in doing that, that's what we found in Antler Extreme. Gotcha. And but it was it was too expensive to bring you know to to get a pallet from that mill and ship down to here. You know, it was like a thousand dollars pallet, oh, and they were gosh. eating they were eating a ton a week. Yeah, it's a four thousand dollar bill a month. Nice. So <laughs> it was one of those situations where we started out 
let's do enough to where we can, you know, take care of our own habits. Yeah. You know, pay for itself, you know? Right, right. And then it just blew up, you know? And, you know... I mean, it's it's all over Georgia right now. I mean, this is a local uh, Georgia, middle Georgia business. I mean, obviously, we're, we're, we all live in middle Georgia, so we're going to talk about middle Georgia businesses. But for those of you who are maybe outside of our area... How, I mean, can they compete? I mean, do y'all ship outside of Georgia? I mean, outside of the so, southeast. So yeah, I mean, we're. I got I got customers in uh, Texas, Florida, uh, okay. all over Alabama. We're actually feeding the Auburn University feed program nice. at their at the college. Good deal. Uh, we have several customers in Tennessee. You know, some Midwest states. I picked up a new dealer that's uh, running feed in Missouri. Now, um, so you guys are expanding. We are more we are. more out of the southeast than you are normally. So, could if, so if a guy's in the Midwest or he's up north, he can still be. They could still. Yeah, we're it. slowly breaking into that. The, the problem that we're having is the the shipping cost, which is yeah, why we brought obviously. it to Georgia, right? Mm-hmm. But we do we have picked up a mill in uh, in Kansas in Missouri so that we can start producing it. So you guys closer will be, to shi- home. You'll be You'll be shipping into the Midwest. Are y'all are y'all shipping in Midwest now? Well, we have a mill making it there, so people can you know get it there, and I do okay. have a dealer for that. So good deal, good deal. So they can go to pretty much go to the Antler Extreme yeah. website and check out their local dealer. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, for me, the the approach I've always taken to supplemental feed is you know if you're not if you're you have to look at the terrain around you. I mean, if you've got good white oats, you've got you know you've got a lot of good brows around high quality brows around. Um, to me, I'll even make the decision not to put corn if I don't. If I think the deer are getting plenty of carbs in their diet, which you know, typically around the rut, that's when I'll start turning on the corn feeders real heavy. Uh, and then even toward the, you know, it doesn't really here where we live in Georgia get so frigidly cold that the deer are going to, you know. Now I know up north and maybe even in even into Tennessee, probably it probably gets pretty freaking cold. Where I would say, yeah, you probably toward the end of the year need to turn on the corn feeder. And let it go, but I think the supplemental feed, specifically when that those deer aren't, aren't getting everything they need off that property, and and you know if they're wild animals, they they're going to find a way to forage to get what they need. But if you make it easier for them, it does help it, and especially when you're talking about a, a rut where the bucks run down, he's looking for more feed. I mean, in in the winter when they know it's about to get cold, they need to pack on some pounds. They're still going to need that, but it's the in the vitamins and stuff. So. Um, and I mean, I'd say for if you've never done supplemental feed, you should give it a shot. It does. It, it, it's a long game thing, I think. And I, it's not an overnight deal. No, it is. If you're it, if you're wanting to manage a property, it's definitely something that. Yeah, it's you know, a long game. It's an investment, but it's going to pay off for you if your goal is to grow the biggest deer that you can in your property. And that's that's why we got into doing it. Yeah, I know um, y'all's videos. You guys use it in conjunction with your food plots. What's yeah. the what's the so the feed program there? is supplemental and you you know you said right. supplemental exactly. several times. It's a supplement to everything else that you're doing, right? Mm-hmm. You wanna you wanna set up your property if you're you know, if that's what you're managing your property for is deer. Yep. Then you wanna set it up to where they have water, they have their bedding, and then they have all of the nutrients that they can get out of that property. So, you know, your food pro your feed, your you know, uh pellets or whatever and I know, I is a supplement right. to your food plots. So I notice y'all's feeders are kind of on your food plots. They're, you know, you got you got your food plot, and I notice the feeders usually on the edge, or not quite, on, but sort of quite on the edge, but on the back half. One thing that we have found over the years is that if you put it tied up against the woods, the deer feel pinched. 
and they don't and they don't feel safe like they're getting pinched in and so okay they what we do is we put it a little ways off of the field edge to where they can get all the way around the feeder uh-huh. and they don't feel pinched and they feel safe like you know, they're, something's not going to reach out so, and grab them. Right, so they're thing. not so far out in the middle of the food plot, but they're still close enough to where they're close got an enough to route. cover to where they feel comfortable still. Yeah, and yeah. they'll hit that feeder. I knew there was a reason the way I was like that feeder is positioned in such a way that it's just not. It's not what my typical ding dong self would do because I'd be like, I'd put it in the middle of the plot, you know. I mean, right? So seriously, then but that, that, so then your buck, you know, he's got to walk across that wide open space every single time to feed it, and he's not going to do that until dark, anyways. Yeah, exactly. You know, and a lot of times, you know, you're going to kill that mature buck on your property first two weeks of the season. Exactly. And if you don't kill him, then you know it's going to be during the rut. And if you don't kill him, then it'll be the end of the season when, mm-hmm. when he's back on that food source. Gotcha. And in between those two times, he's going to be basically gone. That's awesome. Hiding. So I love that advice. I think. I mean, honestly, guys, I think if you're the ones that are listening, I, I, I that's some that's something I'm going to try. I mean, the next food plot I put out, I think that's definitely the way to go. I mean, because if now some people say you don't want your supplemental feeder near where you're hunting, what's your thought on that? And I've heard that a lot too. But the difference. Is a supplemental feed that or feeder that you're using for that is different than a spin cast feeder. A spin cast feeder you're putting out generally to shoot a deer over it. Okay. Okay. So if you have a corn feeder out and every time a deer walks up to it, you shoot it, you're educating the deer not to come to that food source. Exactly. When we put our feeders near our food plots, we don't shoot deer off of those feeders on the regular. We really you know, everyone thinks that hunters are these like you know, killers and we're bloodthirsty and we're out there to kill everything. Yeah. We enjoy just being out there and watching these deer and, oh, yeah. and rarely ever shoot deer. Yeah. And so when our deer come out, they feed off of that feeder, they come out to the food plot, they feed on it and they do that over and over and over and they feel like that's a, you know, a safe food source for them to come to and use. And then over, and then as they do that time and time again, then they draw in a big buck into that area and then you can shoot, you know, you shoot that deer over that, but you're only shooting one deer. Yeah. So you're not educating them that, Every single come to every single time I come to this food source, I'm getting shot I'm getting at. shot at. Yeah, I finally decided to kind of go that method this past year. I I didn't hunt my main stand, which was you know probably forty yards off from my feeder, but I, I still have sight of my feeder. I can still see in that area, but it's kind of off and away. I I laid off a stand for the first time because normally I would just. Hit a stand. That's my stand. I guess where I go, and if the wind's bad, I'll go to the other stand. But pretty much, I'm doing this. Well, th- this past year, I didn't do that. I hunted the wind and the wind only. And if I had to go sit on the ground, that's where I went, and it paid off enormously. And when my dad's like, I ain't seen nothing. I was like, dude, I was covered up, man. Like I had to like sit and to like chill until they moved off. <laughs> to get to where I was going to go because yeah, that's another thing that's, that you say that that's another thing that we do we set up all of our food plots and our feeders to where we can get into our stand and out of our stand without spooking deer because when you have a big food plot in front of you mm-hmm. or a feeder in front of you you need to be able to get in and get out without spooking them because when you're hunting you're hunting in the morning generally and in the evening generally and, and in the morning <laughs> thermals are different but in the morning the deer are feeding and then going to bed so they're already going to be up and feeding so you need to be able to get to your stand without spooking them and then in the evenings they're coming to the food source that you're hunting over so when they get there they're going to be feeding until it gets dark and then you're yeah. stuck there so you need to have a good 
route in and out so, so that you can get in and out without spooking. So them. entry and access, I mean, if there's anything I'm trying to take out of every person we interview, that's my current biggest challenge. I have some great property, I think. I've got real, a really nice track of 48 acres that I hunt with my dad. And it's got everything. It's got great transition points. It's got a killer bedding spot. I mean, it's got a creek. It's got pines. It's got tons of white oats on it. It's every. It's 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 a whitetail heaven. But when the access to the property is not conducive at all, like there's no there's no sideways. We can we can only come in from one side, which is great if we're gonna hunt like the road going in. If that's all we're going to hunt. We can get in there if the wind's in our face. Perfect. Access is not a problem. But to get into the hardwood, you're more than likely going to have to go in either a side of the wind. And if you get it coming in your face, you you might. But you're going to have to go up against to go through or go up next to a bedding area. And that's been the biggest challenge for me. And I don't mind putting it on a public forum either. I don't care what people, you know, but I'm asking the experts. So this is the thing. A lot of my setups, I set up with a parallel wind, which is, which, so a, a mature buck, everyone talks about, oh, a mature buck walks into the wind. And I believe that, but mm -hmm. I, I think it's for two reasons. One is for his safety because mm -hmm. he wants to be able to smell danger in front of him. Mm -hmm. But during the rut, it's so that he can smell those. You know, you hear everybody's talk about how, oh, well, you know, I'm hunting this this ridge where does cross a lot. Well, the reason he's walking that he's walking with the wind into his face so he can smell where the does are. So what I set up with a parallel wind. If I think he's coming from a certain direction, I'm set up so that the wind is actually in his face, but I'm far enough off to one side where when he's coming out of a bedding zone or he's on a transition zone, I'm far enough off to where I don't think he's gonna smell me. Gotcha. And sometimes it doesn't work because the wind swirls and then, you know, the does catch the wind and, and mess it up. But when it <clears> works, <throat> he's in on you at 20 yards and you've got that great shot. You know, I've heard Dan Infall talk about the, I think it's Dan Infall, talk about hunting us. He said he calls it a cut hunting the side of the wind, but see, that's what he means. And that's what I side. did with that, that 150, you know, eight quote, nine point. That wind was blowing into the, the bedding area, but I waited until the wind changed directions where i knew that it was going to be blowing to where you know he could smell it but my wind was blowing parallel to where he, he was bedded and when he came out of that bedding zone he was then you know he he could smell where the direction he was going he felt safe and then when he cut across and came to me he was now i was downwind and he was up when he couldn't got me but i was parallel to him and my wind was parallel to him so he felt comfortable because he didn't smell any danger in front of him gotcha so that's really, you know, and to me that I think that's such a, I, I mean, I don't even, I mean, I think even if you're a beginner, you can figure that out. But I mean, it, it that's to me, it, it took me, I mean, last year was the first time I've ever tried to hunt parallel winds before. And again, in, I don't know. You're, certain, I mean, you're going to get busted and yeah. they're going to get you, but when it works right. It works. It works. And then you're, that's, that, when that's you're how gonna, I, that's honestly, that's how I came across the big one that one time with my standoff. I mean. I had ozone. I had an ozonics blowing downwind uh, to my downwind, but I mean, it didn't matter because of where he came. He came from the side, so like, I mean, that was the first time I've ever had a situation like that, and it, it does work. But you, like you said, you are going to get busted from time to time, and that's just hunting. You know, yeah. I mean, so you're gonna get busted. Sometimes. In that particular situation, I knew that the wind was gonna be blowing into the field, mm -hmm. and so when I walked the edge of the field, I knew that he wasn't gonna wind me. 
mm-hmm. when I walked the edge of the field to my stand. And I knew that the thermals were going to change and they were going to change and start pushing back into that bedding area. Mm-hmm. And when the, when that change was starting to happen, that's when I took off and got up into my deer stand. And I knew that my wind was not going to be blowing into where he was bedded, even though it was blowing back into where some deer may be bedded. Gotcha. But when that wind when that wind changed and it was blowing parallel to him, as soon as like, like I said, I got in the deer stand, I was in there maybe 15, 20 minutes, and all the deer started pouring out. And when that wind changed and they could smell that there was nothing in front of them, and you know that that light change, all of that together is when they started pouring out, and that's when he showed up. And he didn't have a care in the world, and those those <laughs> didn't have a care in the he world. Was ready to go. This yeah. is a little off subject. Um, so. I hear a lot of people talking about hunting hardwoods, and I've seen a lot of deer in hardwoods, but I feel like I see more deer if I hunt where the pines meet the hardwoods. Transition, Transition yeah. points. Yes, sir. Yeah. 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 I feel like that. I mean, honestly, I think that I've I've killed more deer going from a pine transition into a hardwood transition. I've seen more deer. I mean, I have more trail cam action. You're gonna, I, you'll have a lot of, like, tra- you'll have a lot of trail cam pictures in the hardwoods on, like, a, a nice... You know, white oak or something like that, but it's all it's going to be at night. Yeah. You know? I mean, if you think about white I generally do not hunt a big, wide open, yeah. hardwood bottom in, unless there's a thicket near it. Yeah. And then at that point, I'm not even hunting the white oaks. I am, but I'm not. I'm, what I'm hunting is the trails that the deer are using to leave the bedding area to go to those hardwoods. You know, I... Because I, they're open. Yeah, I've spent a lot of time hunting hardwoods and just killing does. Yeah, and there's then I have a camera out there, and there's good bucks coming in, but it's all at night. It's like ten o'clock, eleven yeah. o'clock at night. Biggest gym I think I've got I've ever heard in my life, and I and I heard it from I don't know if y'all remember Loman calls, but I, mean, I think they're still out. I don't know, but this guy they had their I don't know if this was their pro staff guy. His name was Brad Harris. He's from Alabama. Best advice I've ever heard about whitetails and how they operate is that they're creatures of edge. I think that is the best description of a whitetail. They, if there is an edge point, whether that's a fence, uh, transition point, or a bench ridge, or whatever, doesn't matter. If there is some sort of edge created, the whitetail will, that's how they move. And if you got that, you've got any edge working, could be a creek, creates an edge. More than likely, you're going to have whitetails moving on it. A ridge can can create an edge. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A ridge yeah. can create an edge. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, anytime you have an edge, the literal edge, that you can just about guarantee a whitetail is going to cross. Well, it. that's where you're always going to find your scrape lines. Exactly. And lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, a matter of fact, on the, where I was hunting was a bench right on top and on that ridge, and that's where that's where the big one was. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're hunting a hardwood bottom or you know a hardwood flat or something next to a pine thicket. You're going to see all the scrapes and rubs going all up and down the, the thicket. And the reason for that, that buck is letting all the deer that's crossing or coming out of that thicket, they're going to use all the different trails coming out of there, right? Mm-hmm. So you're going to have your different doe herds that are going to come out of that bedding area. They all have their areas that they like to bed yes. in. And so each one of them have a different trail. Well, those bucks, the reason they're running that, that ridge like that is because, or that, that field or the thicket edge, is they're marking everywhere they smell another deer. And, mm-hmm. and the main areas that they're going to mark is where they're they're smelling those trails that the other deer are using. So they're letting every doe in that area know that they're there, and letting all the other bucks know that they're there. Exactly, so. exactly, man. That's I tell you, you know what the greatest hunting spot I've ever had in my life. There was this sand old sand pit that where I guess they used to do. Uh, I guess there was a concrete 
factory that had created the sand pit and they abandoned it or whatever. But the biggest deer between me and my dad had ever killed two of the biggest deer I've, we had killed up until that point were out of that sand pit <laughs> because it was a different type of terrain and all the undergrowth had come up from, you know, had grown into the sand pit, but around it was hardwood and one side of it was pines. And then one side of, I mean, it was, it was a, just a, I mean, it was gorgeous. I mean, part of it, you could, there had bedding area on it. I mean, it was just like the best setup. Some of the best stuff that you can find to hunt, especially if you're, you know, you're after a big mature buck and you know he's in the area, is uh, is a thick hardwoods, actually. You know, mm. you have, there's, unless you have a fire break, there's rarely like a, you know, a hard uh, transition zone. It's usually mm-hmm. kind of, you know, it, it'll usually transition from your thicket and then and then your hardwoods are going to clear out. Yeah. In that area where you're, like your white oaks or red oaks or whatever are mixed in with that thicket, and there's little openings and stuff in that stuff. That's where your bucks are generally going to feed, right? Mm-hmm. You know, before dark until they go out to where they find like that one white oak that's dropping a million acorns. Yeah. And if, when you hunt that spot with little sign, it's it's kind of crazy, right? Because you're 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 like, oh my, you know, you come over into this hardwoods and you see this white oak that has all these tracks around it. You're like, right. there's so many deer using this. But then you go back and you're like, all right, well, where are they coming from? Because the, the you know your buck's feeding at ten o'clock at night, so where is he coming from? So then you go you know you find the trails back to the bedding area, and then you hunt that transition zone where it's kind of thick, but it's not, and there's you know hardwood, you know there's red oaks or white oaks, and there's enough space for him to feed in there, and the acorns are falling down into the thicket, and he can walk around in that stuff and feed and feel safe because he's still covered. Right, he's got all that cover around him. But when you get up into a tree, you know, when you're eye level that, and you look through that stuff, you can't see it. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't shoot through there, you can't see through there, nothing. But when you get up into a tree and you're looking straight down, it's a completely different view. That's why I wish, you know, I don't know if it's legal, but I've always wondered, like, what if you had, like, a drone camera? <laughs> like, wouldn't that be, like, the best way to, like, scout? Like, but I heard that's illegal. Yeah. Like I heard you cannot you cannot survey property with a drone for for I think it's I don't know where I read that. I feel like I read it off a DNR site that they do not that it's, it's probably it probably goes to back to like harassing wildlife. Uh, I see like that would freak them out. Well, people are like probably like I don't know, maybe chasing them with Oh god. I don't know. That would be retarded. Like I mean, why would you go chase a deer with the, I mean Trust me, I mean, I've lived in Georgia a long time. Yeah. <laughs> Hunted with some very questionable people before. <laughs> I can definitely see them going out. You're like, look, dude, there he is. Yeah. He's on the north side. If you gaze up a side of him, I guarantee you can get on him. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, I can totally see that happening. But yeah, I, I definitely, I mean, I think it for us, but I, was, I would think, man, just from like, well, what if I just wanted to scout terrains, you know, like, and I don't think, I don't, I don't know if it's like, somebody would have to check that. See this. We need. This is why we need somebody who's like our. I fin- mean, I think if you fingers flew, man who searches stuff while fl- we talk. <laughs> I feel like I've seen people fly drones over like woodlots and stuff before. You know, scouting them and checking out the terrain. And I stuff. mean, I figured land surveyors would have to do that. Mm-hmm. I would what, think it would be legal unless you were chasing the deer. And then yeah. maybe <laughs> like during the season, I could see yeah. why they have somebody would have a problem. I like mean, that. you see guys running drones over properties all the time. time There's people so. that do in my neighborhood. I'm yeah, like, think, you know, yeah. I mean. Goodness gracious. If I mean, you're like actually in the pursuit of killing the deer at that time, it's probably legal. But, you know, just surveying your property. It, it, I mean, but as a, okay, so as a dog tracker, 
if you could have that in conjunction with everything else. So I have, have. I, I have had a friend that they uh, they used the drone to go over the top of like a big clear cut, and they actually did find a you know the deer doing that. They didn't use the dog, but they did use the, that drone to recover that deer because I mean I would think that'd be a pretty it was vital a huge tool. it was like a huge like cattail swamp yeah and it, it was gut shot and the deer ran way out there and so they they didn't have a dog or anything they just flew their drone they were videoing and stuff a hunt and so they actually flew that drone over the top of that swamp Honestly, and found him out there that's to me I mean but that's a tool yeah but you can't me. do that when you have a huge block of you know hardwoods or pines or something yeah yeah, yeah. I can forget it you're. <laughs> Yeah. Unless he's just white bellied up in that one little tiny opening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, shoot, man. Uh, I would love. I wish we had more time to talk to Scott, but like, I mean, we are, we are almost to our, we're almost into our third hour. <laughs> we're <laughs> probably was, gonna have to make it a two parter. It was yeah. like this would run too. We yeah. feel like we don't have time to talk about everything we want to I mean, talk about. Yeah. We could go on for hours probably for more of stuff with you because there's you're. Got a whole bunch of stuff we could love to Yeah, talk I feel to like about. we covered a lot of stuff, but like we didn't. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. I think I it would there's... be pretty cool maybe to get Scott and Ryan together. Oh, I bet that would be, be fun. That'd be fun. Yeah. That'd be fun. They'd be making fun of each other. Mm-hmm. That'd be great. He's, he's the one that told us to call you Last Pace Lopez. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> that, that story Lopez. came from, I was actually at Drill, and uh, Dennis called me and said, hey, come shoot this tournament with us. And I was well, where is this down in, in Dublin? So I was okay. But I don't get out of work till one o'clock, and the shoot like you you have to be there by three to you know to, to start your shoot or whatever. So I ran home, got my bow, drove all the way out there, and my bow wasn't sighted in. <laughs> so I literally had like minutes to sight my bow in and then go shoot so Ugh. that we could sign up. That feels bad. And so I like halfway sighted my pins <laughs> in or whatever, and I shot horrible. And there were, I don't even think, there may have been like maybe four or five people in the class that I was shooting. So when you shoot horrible and there's not very many people, you're going to end up. <laughs> you're going to be last you're end up last, you know. And that was the only, officially, and I don't care what Dennis says, officially that is the only time that Dennis Lewis has ever beat but, me in a 3D drive. Uh, I heard Chuck Darnell, you know, shot higher than you the last shoot. Yeah, I had a rough shoot this past weekend. <laughs> yeah. I didn't get last though, so. Well, while we were waiting on you, Kelby was like, this is why they call him Last Place Lopez, because he's late. I have my my uh, my family and close friends. You can ask Danny and, and Holly and my wife. You know, they always say I'm on Lopez time. But you got to understand that, like, especially during deer season, if you if you say, Scott, you want to have dinner tomorrow night? I'm like, yeah, sure. But you, ha- you have to be a, you have to understand that. I will I will come have dinner with you if I'm not tracking five deer, you know, or if, you know, I might be out, you know, you might say, hey, we're having dinner at, you know, six o'clock. I'm like, all right, cool, I'll be there. But I was tracking deer, you know, all morning, and I didn't finish track until five o'clock, and then I got yeah. there at five fifteen. You know, I got there at six fifteen because that's when I could get there. Gotcha. You know, so they always they call it the Lopez time. So we're gonna change it to last pace, Lopez. Yeah. <laughs> That face is off. Yeah. No, it's all good, man. No, well, I, I love it, man. If your friends aren't making fun of you, then they're not it, friends. Yeah, I mean that's that's how you can tell if you you know, you know when you have a good relationship with some people and you can make fun of each other and you're still friends. You know what I mean? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, dude, what we're gonna have you back on? Yeah, that would be probably cool. with Ryan. That would be great. Honestly, I think that's great. Well, dude, 
man, Scott, I I had a killer time talking to you. Man. Yeah, I appreciate I, you I, guys I, having me on. I want I want to keep. Yeah, we're definitely going to have you back on with Ryan for sure. That'd be a great two part. It'd be a great dual interview. Yeah, you all four. This good. was my first one ever, so I may be. I know we're honored because I know you turned down other shows and told them yeah. that you're waiting for the best podcast. There you podcast go, of all time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It will be. So, all right, man. Well, uh, thank you guys for listening again. Like, subscribe, check us out on the socials, all that good stuff. Um, if you guys are interested in Antler Extreme, you can go to antlerextreme.com. Com mm-hmm. and uh, we have a Facebook page Antler Extreme. Yeah, Facebook page Antler Extreme. Uh, Instagram, like, Instagram. All yeah. that they got all the socials, all the yeah. socials, all the regs. Yeah. Uh, one uh, one thing I would like to say, and uh, for folks out there that are looking for uh, a tracker, okay, we'll go back to the deer tracking thing. And um, there's a couple of uh, sources you can use to find a deer tracker. One of them is called United Blood Trackers. Okay. And it's a na- it's a website that is uh, nationally, or it, it covers the entire United States of any state that has a tracker in it. Got it. So people will sign up, and then you can find a tracker per state, and that's a good way. But also, Facebook, you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of Facebook pages out there now yeah, for tracking. Groups, yeah. You know, Georgia Blood Tracking, Alabama Blood Tracking, stuff like that. What I would say though is on that is uh, before season, call someone that you know tracks in your area, get their phone number, have that all set up already, mm-hmm. so that when you shoot that deer of a lifetime, <laughs> you're not panicking. At that point, you've kind of like you know you've talked to them, you you know mm-hmm. who they are, you know maybe fill them out to see you know you know what their experience is, all that kind of stuff. But you have a plan. You know, if you do come into that situation, right? No one wants to, but eventually, if you hunt enough, yeah. you're going to. Going this route, it really gives you um, a heads up as well if you're out of state. Because yeah. even if you don't have a tracker, if you call one of your buddies and be like, "Hey, you know, who should I call?" and a lot of times, someone will know someone in your local area. Yeah. But if you're out of state, it could be a lot harder to find someone. You know, I come to think of it, I, I'm where I hunt in Alabama um, for my out of state hunt this year. I definitely need to take a look so that's killer advice dude even my like when i go out of state i do it Mm -hmm. you know i i look up a facebook page and you know a lot of the facebook pages will have lists of trackers per county you know and at least you have that ahead of time heck yeah it's awesome shoot dude thank you yeah man Trying to find a, a tracker at eleven o'clock at night in you know Kentucky and you don't know what county you're in could be yeah. <laughs> could be frustrating. Yeah, absolutely. I don't want to. I don't want to live that experience yeah, ever. But, <laughs> well, thanks, guys. I hey, really dude. appreciate you having me on. Absolutely, brother. <laughs>